And welcome to the Exotic Pet Collective. My name is Richard, and oh, I forgot to play the intro music, so uh, let me let me do that real quick. All right, and now it's official. The podcast has started, and welcome back to another episode, and I am Damn, I am so excited about this episode. And if I'm excited, you should be excited because I'm just world weary. I, I beat down by the universe. I am a cynic, a nihilist, and, and nothing excites me anymore except for tarantulas. And um, uh, we're talking about tarantulas, so maybe that's why I'm excited, but it's not. We have an amazing, amazing guest, somebody that I have been a fan of since the 90s, late 90s. I came on the podcast. So uh, before I introduced them to you and and, and you hear our conversation, uh, which was a lot of fun, I just got a little bit of housekeeping to take care of at the top of the show. And I just want to remind everybody, I will be at Animal Con USA in Orlando, Florida next weekend, uh, which is really exciting. It's the uh, 26th, 27th, and 28th at the Royal Caribbean Resort. And uh, if you want more information, just go to AnimalConUSA.com. And if you decide you want to go, use the code Richard. Save some money. I don't remember how much it is. Maybe like five bucks or something like that. Uh, but just save some money off of your tickets. And there's a bunch of different ticket packages and stuff like that. So check out the website if you want more information. And I wanted to shout out one of uh, my favorite podcasts. Uh, you know, because I'm getting these comments all the time. Like uh, people are like, we want more podcasts. Make more podcasts. And actually, I don't think anybody's ever said that. <laughs> but uh, if you need more content, uh, you know, I, I'm only able to put out maybe one a week, one every couple of weeks. Uh, but there's a lot of great podcasters out there from the exotic pet hobby. Uh, one of which is I listen to every episode. I really enjoy. It's called Amphibicast. It's Dan Dendro Beatty's. Uh, he's a great host and uh, he talks a lot about dart frogs and frogs in general. But, you know, it's more than that. Like he's also talking about toads and salamanders and, and amphibians. Uh, but even beyond that, talking about plants, Vivarium building. Uh, he's got a whole out of the glass box series uh, where you know he has he had on my friend Bill Strand from the Chameleon Academy. They talked about chameleons. I was on his podcast talking about tarantulas. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of other guests, uh, and you can find Amphibicast anywhere you listen to podcasts. So he's on Spotify, he's on Apple Podcast. Uh, you can check out uh, his Instagram, follow him there. He will let you know every time he uploads a new podcast and links to all the different platforms that it's on. But you know, anywhere you listen to podcasts, just do a quick search for Amphibicast. Give him a listen. You'll definitely enjoy it. Uh, if you like my podcast, you'll love his podcast because uh, we do something very similar, slightly different topics, but he's much more professional and, and does a much better job at, at, at being a podcaster. So please check out Amphibicast. Uh, you, you won't be let down. I will say that. And of course, I got to thank the sponsor of today's podcast and like all the podcasts in this like six month span. Uh, they're, they're a huge fan. Uh, just friend of the channel. They're they're not even the, the channel or the podcast. They're just friends. I, I enjoy these people on a personal basis, uh, but also you know that they're supporting. I because you don't make any money. I'm not making any money doing this. I am broke, and I get like little emails every now and then from Buzzsprout who uh, hosts this podcast, and sometimes we'll drop in commercials, and I'll be like, "You got paid," and you're like, "Oh yeah," and you go open up the email, and it's like thirty seven cents. It's like, why did you even send that email? <laughs> like just depressing. Uh, but they are they they wanted to help out and support and and you know it's it just kind of covers the cost of hosting because podcasts aren't free. I got I got to pay a website a service to host all these and 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 get them out there on the networks and essentially they are covering those costs. So I am extremely grateful for them. So a huge thanks to the sponsor of today's podcast, 
arthropod ambassadors. Now, if you're not familiar with them, they take a unique look at our tiny neighbors that wear their bones on their skin. They aim to spark interest in bugs and support the well-being of arthropods in our backyard and around the world. They're spreading this educational inspiration through arthropod art, the mobile bug zoo, informational YouTube videos, and invertebrate hobby networking. They also work with edible insects, specimen preservation, pest management, and beekeeping. From compost-enhancing roly-polies and alien-like top predator mantises to the honeybee alchemist we partnered with long ago, arthropods come in all shapes and sizes and are waiting to teach us more about the earth that we all have in common. If you're interested in becoming more familiar with mantises, jumping spiders, assassin bugs, roaches, or a variety of other critters, head over to arthropodambassadors.com and check out their content on which species they have available. You can also find a collection of videos covering nature walks, pet mantises, resin art, and other invertebrates on their YouTube channel, also called Arthropod Ambassadors. And you can follow them on Instagram to stay updated on new educational content or species that they may have available in the future. So a huge thanks to Arthropod Ambassadors for sponsoring this podcast, and I will leave a link down below in the show notes so you can check out their website and all their other social media. Thank you so much, Arthropod Ambassadors. I could not be doing this without you. You guys are a uh, major help and, uh, you know, an asset to the hobby. So thank you very much. Uh, and just to let you know real quick before we jump into it, I have uh, partnered with a couple of different businesses and uh, they've given me some affiliate links that you can use. That's going to save you some money and I'll just run through them real quick. We're not going to do like a big ad read, but if you're in the need to purchase some some stuff, uh, you can use these codes. It'll save you some money. It'll also, uh, we get a little kickback here at uh, the, uh, the well, this is the Exotic Pet Collective, but the Tarantula Collective as well. All right, so first off, if uh, you need some tarantulas, scorpions, uh, jumping spiders, millipedes, uh, he's even got crested geckos on there sometimes, and other reptiles, uh, just go to microwilderness.com. Use the code TTC10 at checkout. It's going to save you 10% off your order. Uh, if you need any bioactive supplies, sub- substrates, cork bark, cork rounds, cork branches, springtails isopods uh, i mean they, they got all kinds of plants and you know, anything you need for a bioactive enclosure or just an enclosure at all all of your enclosure needs you can get at the biodude.com and if you use the code tarantula 10 it's going to save you 10 percent. and finally tarantula cribs huge fan uh and they're you know huge friend they're, they're a good friend of the channel and uh you go to their website tarantulacribs.com get any of the enclosures you want use the code t collective 10 at checkout save 10 percent so those are all slightly different codes just to make it complicated for you, but they'll save you some money and you'll help support the channel. So, so thank you so much. Now, today's guest is somebody that I first started watching back, uh, man, I guess uh, in the late 90s, but it really kicked off about the same time I got my first tarantula. So I'm sitting in my college dorm room, I get my first tarantula, and uh, one of the, the ways I was kind of getting over my arachnophobia, my, you know, my, my, I don't know if it was actually a phobia, but uh, my extreme fear of spiders was uh, just kind of like immersion therapy. I got the tarantula and uh, learned a lot about it, but I also would take it out of its enclosure sometimes and just kind of let it walk around on me while I was studying or watching TV in the dorm room. And one of the the shows I loved to watch was Mad TV. It was hilarious, and there was a lot of great cast members there. And, I, you know, so I would have my tarantula crawling around. I mean, I mean, I mean crawling around on me, just like hanging out and <laughs> just like, sitting on my leg or you know on my chest or something just like freaked out like what is why am i on this person (laughs) but i didn't know any better back then Uh, but would be laughing watching mad tv and really enjoying that and i did a podcast a few weeks back with uh, nate from micro wilderness so if you haven't checked that out you should give it a listen because that was a great conversation but he mentioned that one of his customers uh was deborah wilson from mad tv and i was kind of blown away one that 
he even knew her and talked to her on a, on a semi-regular basis and she was a customer but the, the fact that she kept tarantulas and scorpions and exotic pets at all i found fascinating and much to my surprise she heard the podcast and was like i want to come on and talk to you so i was like uh, hell yeah <laughs> let's do this um now unfortunately she is in hollywood she's out in l.a I'm here in the Appalachians, so there's a time difference, and you know she's she's a busy a busy woman. She works a lot, does a lot of voiceovers. She's an actress, an actor. Uh, I don't I don't know what they're called anymore, but she does amazing work and a lot of it. I mean, just go check out her IMDb, and it's like this endless list of credits. <laughs> she's been in video games and cartoons and shows, and and just I mean we we talk about it in our discussion some, but so she's busy. And was only able to record like 9, 30, 10 o'clock LA time, Pacific time, uh, which was like one o'clock in the morning for me. So it was really late. I'm not even sure exactly what I said because I was uh, fighting to stay awake, I guess. Not really. I was really excited. But, you know, I get loopy at night. After midnight, who knows what coming out of my mouth. But we'll find out soon. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, the one and only, the amazing Deborah Wilson. How are you, sir? I am good. Uh, I'm a little tired, but. <laughs> and thank you, you for it. your patience and thank you for uh, this really late night, you know, Tarantula Collective podcast with me. And I hope you don't mind that I got in. It's hot here in L.A. and I'm, I'm eating sorbet. That's that's totally fine. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Glad, but. Good. Mm. <laughs> awesome. Yes, and thank you for for allowing me to in, indulge myself. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk tarantulas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I I wanted to start off kind of just by it's kind of like a baseline question I ask everybody. Uh, you know, when did you get tarantulas and scorpions? Like, how did the hobby start for you? Stay with us. We'll be right back. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Abject terror. Okay. I've always had an abject terror in my mind. Um, a huge psychosis of um, scorpions and tarantulas. And I was at this place in Burbank, California, called uh, Scales and Tails at their at their original location. And one of the people that worked there was had this scorpion and I freaked out and I ran out of that place so fast into the parking lot. I'm surprised I didn't get hit by a car. <laughs> and I came back in and shook it off. And he was giving me an explanation of why I didn't need to be afraid, but educating me. Okay. And he picked it up and he put it down and he said, see, and he gave me permission to touch it if I wanted to. And I was like, nah, but <laughs> I was, I was very intrigued that it was as easy for him to say, Hey, try it, touch yeah. it. As opposed to, you know, we don't let anybody touch the animals. It stresses them out or anything like that. It was, he was very open. 
And so uh, I waited three hours. I stood around because I was very curious. And I, I, it took me three hours in one place without leaving, just walking around and looking and looking at customers who came and went um, to finally go, okay. And he had picked it up by the tail and just gently put it on his hand and put it back. I did it for a second and put it back. Yeah. Picked it up, put it back. And when I drove home, the shock was, I can't believe I held a tarantula. I can't, I mean, scorpion. I can't believe I picked up a scorpion. I can't believe I picked up a scorpion. And that reverberated as strongly as my fear. Yeah. But the supplement to me going, wow, I can't believe I picked up a scorpion was the education that went with it. Okay. And I couldn't get that out of my head. And so that was the last um, powerful experience uh, that completely uh, dismissed the fear. And I realized the fear didn't belong to me because if I can, I can, this fascination and this power to be able to do this physical action mm-hmm. was so powerful that, um, yeah, it was overwhelmingly powerful that I, I went, I, 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 I have to have one. I have, I have to have one. I want to learn more. Okay. You know, I was intrigued and it completely, like I said, was a substitute to the fear because I realized wait a minute, this fear doesn't belong to me, but I had no substitute for it. So I took ownership of it. And it's the same thing with tarantulas. The tarantulas is, are, are, is more recent. Tarantulas is only maybe four years. Okay. And what ended up happening was that same person bought the shop and moved it years later yeah. to another location in Burbank, California. And he put one on my hand and it was like, because every time I saw them, I would curl my whole body and go like, oh. And um, he educated me again. And he remembered me from years and years ago when I had dreadlocks and all that stuff. And he remembered me and said, no, 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 here's a little information. And the thing that stood out in my head was he said, if they fall from a great height, um, if it's a a, a floor that's heavy duty, concrete, Mm -hmm. um, their abdomens can burst. It can kill them. Yeah. And that was like, wow. Um, and then the one that he put in my hand, he walked away to get the phone and it was crawling. And I was like, because I felt like I had no comfort zone. You know, there wasn't anybody to take it back from. Exactly. Yeah. And so it fell out of my hand. It, it crawled. And usually they do this. But, you know, if there I guess if there's a lot of wind, if there's a lot of movement, if there's a lot of air shift, mm-hmm. uh, they get nervous. And, and he continued to move. And he jumped out of my hand and hit the ground. And I freaked out uh, because I thought I'd killed it. Oh. And I went to go get it. And I realized there was no hesitation in its care. It was no hesitation in making sure it was all right. There was no hesitation in trying to scoop it up. I never thought about getting bitten. I never thought about uh, urticating hairs. I never thought about anything. I didn't care. The only thing I cared about is was this animal's welfare, this sentient being's welfare. And I realized the fear had been gone. And what was left was the shock of, I have to take care of you, but I, I didn't want to hurt you. I have to take care of you. I have to take care of you. I have to make sure you're okay. Make sure it's cold. And I drove home in shock going, I just want to take care of one. I want to take care of one. I want to make sure it's okay and it has a, has a great life. I want to take care of one. And I became so fascinated. I did my own research. I started meeting people. Um, I started going to, because um, uh, I would always go to reptile super shows and things like that yeah. in Los Angeles. Because um, I've always, I've had snakes. I've had snakes for almost 30, you know, 20, 25 to 30 years uh, of raising, raising them. And so, and that came also from an abject terror. And I realized that belonged to my father and he wanted, 
his in his way, based on his generation, a way to keep me safe from things like this, even if it's unrealistic. I understand. Which was scare me. Like they'll do this, they'll do this, and 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 the misinformation. But it's your father. So based on that relationship, you listen to the man who's always protecting you and will never steer you wrong. Mm-hmm. Or so you believe. But his whole thing was, I need to keep you in his mind. It was such an abject terror for him and his um, lack of awareness and education, but p- pure fear, especially from World War II. It was a rough beginning, a rough thing for him. So uh, I've always carried that with me. And I saw someone holding one and I went, you can't do that. It's going to it's going to do this. And then she was like, no, 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 that's not true. She quelled me and said, here's the deal. It was a boa. Yeah. And it's so small. She goes, watch, I'm going to put it. And he put it on me and she put it on me. And it was a little, just a baby boa. And it was, I was like, it's, it's still, because it's going to bite me, right? If I move, it's going to strike. I don't know. It's comfortable. Your skin is warm. And I just went, wait a minute. It's comfortable with me. This sentient creature is comfortable with me. And um, again, the light bulb went off. Like there is this symbiotic relationship when I calm down and it's comfortable on my warm skin. It was just this, and I bought him and Victor, Victor, <laughs> both constrictor was my baby for 20 years. Yeah. So was, his name, back in, his full name was Victor, Victor, ball constrictor. Once you get hugged by a boa, you won't get hugged any Moa Wilson. <laughs> That's quite a name. Yeah. So that was back in like, what, like 2000. Oh, way before then. Yeah. That was way before I moved to Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles in 1995. Okay. Um, so I got Victor in. By the time I had Victor, he was, I guess it was 1989. Okay. 1989, 1990. Yes. And he passed away here in Los Angeles. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, We we also had a psychic connection. Oh, yeah. Believe it or not. Yeah. So was that the only snake you had for like that entire time or did you like get one and then slowly start getting more? Victor was the, uh, Victor was my one and only. We did have a very, a a very simpatico relationship. Okay. Um, And a lot of people will think, well, a a snake, what kind of relationship can you have with a snake? I said, I can have a huge relationship with a snake. It doesn't matter whether the relationship has a snake has a relationship with me. It's not, I'm not trying to look for something back. I know it's not a dog or cat. Yeah. I'm not asking for something in return. It's not a barter system in, in, in a relationship with a sentient being. You do it because you love them. You do it because of their care. You do it because you want to recreate um, uh, their atmosphere, their environment, and and have a quality of life with you. Um, and he was captive bred. Yeah. And so uh, he developed uh, inclusive body disease where each organ started to shut down slowly. Oh, jeez. And once he was diagnosed, I was giving, he was on fluids and I would go under his scales and give him these huge hypodermics of, of, of that. And they said, there's nothing we can do because with inclusive body disease, there is no cure. Yeah. Um, he was infected by his mate, even though I had uh, quarantined her, she was uh, an adoption and I quarantined her for a while. Um, I watched them go through not liking each other and not wanting to be in the same space after their after her quarantine to being in each other's company, discovering that they were mates, yeah. sleeping together as if they were a two headed snake. You couldn't tell the bodies <laughs> were together and their heads were constantly his head was on top of hers or their heads were side by side together. 
Um, it was definitely a courtship. And one day I was cleaning out the substrate and he was putting his hemi pinnaces back in. Like I busted him and it was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and um, um, herpetologists were telling me, don't worry, they won't make. It's not possible. Not with your environments, not with your conditioning. Yeah, you're not trying to make them as long as you're not trying to make them. If you're not attempting to make them, that's great because they were not going to mate anyway. But okay. you know what? Life finds a way. Nature finds a way. I don't care who you are. Um, there are certain powers that be that are greater uh, than our idea of what science and nature is supposed to tell us, like a bumblebee. You say a bumblebee is not supposed to be flying because it's the wings are disproportionate to the body mass. Well, tell that to the bumblebee who's flying past your fucking face. Right. <laughs> um, and so um, they mated. She had 28 neonates. I midwifed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I didn't know nothing about birth no babies. But, you know, <laughs> life makes a way. And I did anyway. Yeah. I even made I even made um, birth announcements. And I gave them out. Nice. <laughs> People at Mad TV. It was like. Victor and Lizzie had neonates. Look, everybody. Yeah, but they're very, they're self-aware the day they're born. Okay. Because I put them on the bed and um, I put them on a red velvet bedspread and I started to take pictures and moving around and they started following me and started uh, striking yeah. and hissing. Um, here's the interesting thing I also discovered that when they mate, even though Lizzie was a red tail boa and Victor was a, a common... Uh, South American boa. When the neonates were born, they were either 100%, uh, a section of them, a portion of them were either 100% Colombian red tail boa, or a portion of them were 100% common South American boa. Interesting. I did not know that. They did not hybridize or anything like that. Yeah. There were very specific differences. And I looked at them and I went, wait a minute, this is a 100% Colombian boa. There is no mix with, with the ones that are, are uh, just common South American boa. They were either little victors or little Lizzie's, but yeah. they, they were not hybridized in any way. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> I did not know that. And I took tons of pictures in their courtship. Anyway. Yeah. She developed, she had it in her, but it had, it hadn't incubated enough inclusive body disease. Yeah. And he, she passed it on to him and they both, um, transitioned from it, but he woke me up one night to tell me that he was gone. And I went, no, Deborah, that's not him. That's you because you know, you've been taking care of him. You've been checking on him two or three o'clock in the morning. It's just anxiety speaking to you. Try to go back to sleep again. He woke me up going, I'm gone. I've left you now. It's like, you go up and go up and find me. Yeah. Go up and find, me. go up and go and take care of my body now. And I went back to sleep and no, 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 That's not, no, Deborah. It's your, it's a psychosis. You're just the anxiousness of how long he's going to live or how long, when he's going to die. And then um, a third time. And I went, all right, this is, I need to investigate. And I did. And he was gone. Oh, wow. So is that what you mean when you said you all had a psychic connection? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's very interesting. Absolutely. And then a psychic came around and I was like, okay. And she goes, um, your snake shows, shows a, a high level of intelligence. And I was like, okay. <laughs> she said, he's showing me an image and I'll tell you why he's intelligent. He's showing me the image of, um, of a human 
a man. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> she goes, but he's not a regular man. He's, 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 he's crotchety. He's, he's, she's showing me an image. I'm getting an image of an, an old man who's not happy, you know, like a, a grumpy old man. Okay. And his nickname was grumpy old man. I call uh, him grumpy old man all the time. <laughs> That's pretty wild. So and she said she's showing me an image of a grumpy old man. Yeah. She said like, you know, he's angry. He's crotchety like a grumpy old man. And I went, <laughs> then I went, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And so all of them came from some sort of fear into this complete passionate desire to know um, more about their existence and know more about their caregiving and know more and be fascinated with how they eat, how they live, their life expectancy, their environment, how they mate, how they molt. Um, I was just obsessed. And I was obsessed. And I was always obsessed with the bigger breeds, go bigger, go home, because I had two boas. Um, and I once had a, I once had a, um, a ball python, but it wasn't the same relationship. Yeah. Lizzie's relationship with Victor was powerful, but Val, you know, Victor's relationship with me, which was the longest was, was, was even more powerful. Um, and Lizzie had a relationship with her, uh, caregiver. I don't call people owners or you don't own a pet, you don't own an animal, you're a caregiver. Um, and so her caregiver had to give her up. And I said, trust me, not on my watch. Will she go into the ASPCA or anybody else that will not? Because I was obsessed with my animals and I always made sure that I had custom made terrariums, custom made enclosures, something large enough that was going to be 11 feet. How old is it going to be? He's going to get six, seven, eight, nine. Let me make sure it's 11 feet. You know, that kind of a thing. And let me make a dual shelf. So let me make it four feet or five feet tall so that there's a secondary shelf level where, you know, you can lay out completely there. And let me give you your own room. He had a, they had a loft. Nice. <laughs> so not only that, but it was a loft where, the, you know, obviously um, hot air rises. So in the summers, that heat rose up naturally. And I never really needed, um, I never really needed heat lamps. Yeah, that's very for cool. them. I always made sure. Yeah. And, and just maintaining their substrate and, and giving them baths and taking them out. And yeah, yeah, they became, and all of them are like that. Even, even I have that type of relationship with my scorpions and my tarantulas. So how many scorpions and tarantulas would you say you have now? I definitely, well, I have eight. I, I had 11. Okay. I have eight tarantulas now instead of 11. And I have only five scorpions left. Do you out, know? Of tw- out of 12 out of i had 12 okay what, what type of scorpions were you keeping oh my goodness you name it i had it um i had african emperors you know the african emperor scorpion is still the same as a dictator dictators and emperors are not two different species okay they're just they're just because you can get a red claw emperor and it's much smaller yeah but it's not necessarily the larger african giant emperor scorpion um, so I had emperors, I still have an emperor and they all have names. They all have names. Uh, I have one of the largest breeds, which was a, a challenge to find. I couldn't find it in the country. So I had it imported, which was the, um, heterometra swamardami. Yeah. Um, which is an Asian forest. And I also have, I like the heterometris. 
Um, I have a heterometrous spinifer. I had a heterometrous, I had a couple of perturcis. I had um, a couple of cyaneus as well. Okay. And uh, desert hairy, hadronis, hadronis, arizonensis. Um, and one that is so rare and it's so tiny that it, when it's full grown, it's about this big. Interesting. And that was the uh, Superstitionia donensis, found the superstition, superstition Mountains here in um, uh, San Diego County okay. mountains. They get about this big. And it's a, it's a full scorpion. It's not like one of those pseudo scorpions that doesn't have a tail or something. Mm-mm. Full size, full scorpion. Oh, wow. It's a full 100% scorpion. <laughs> That's all. Awesome. And that was teeny. Yeah. Um, and uh, teeny was given to me by Nate. I call him Nate spider guy. Okay. <laughs> was by Nate spider guy. I told you I wrote, I told you I wrote a theme song for him. Yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to write you one. You deserve one, Richard. I'm going to well, write you one you. too. Uh, Nate's a good yeah, guy. I like him. him. Yeah. 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 And we became great friends. And here's what I did. I would constantly re, re, uh, make my enclosures. All of my enclosures are custom. Yeah. Yeah. He was I telling mean, me I've that. I made custom enclosures 11 times okay. for all of them. And at that time I had like 16. I made at least 11 brand new enclosures. And each time I would give some, uh, donate them to people who wanted. But after a while, uh, Nate became my buddy. And so I was constantly giving him. So I'm always giving Nate, constantly giving Nate um, things that I go, I'm not going to use, but I know, you know, it's going to help his business. You know, now that I know that he's got this spiderarium, uh, which is a whole home yeah. with three rooms dedicated to them. I'm like, I got these lights and I got these LEDs and I've got this. So his next thing, and I've got these enclosures and I've got these, uh, you know, the things that go in the enclosures. I've got these decorations. I've got these substrates. So I love sharing with him. I love being able to go, okay, I have this idea. I want to build something bigger. I want to make sure I get the dimensions larger than that. And I had a custom made shelving unit and then put lights in each and every one of them underneath like puck lights so that their lights go on during the day and they go off at night. And so you can look into their enclosures like it's, um, yeah. And I keep them in the bedroom, but it's a really cool setup. It's a really, my, I have to send you pictures of the setup. I think you, I think you improve because I see your setups and I'm like, wow. (laughs) But I also see the space that you hold with them. And so, um, uh, all of them are in the bedroom so that people don't get alarmed. Um, they're not public. I do have my fish out, but you know, you don't get alarmed by that. And so, yeah. Um, For a while, I was wanting yeah. to move one of our snake enclosures into the living room. Like I you know, have this big, massive one. I was like, it would be beautiful wow. in the corner. And my wife was like, I don't I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> She's like, and it's her snake. But that was her thing is like, I just don't want to freak out people that come over. I don't want to make yeah. anyone uncomfortable. So everything is is hidden away in the basement. And we don't really, I mean, I mean, I'm online creating content, but we don't really advertise it. We don't tell people you know, what's down in the basement. So it's, it's like one of those things that we get to know you, we kind of feel you out and you express some interest. It's like, all right, we got something to show you. Come down here. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and no stress to imagine down in the basement. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I love my tarantulas. I love my tarantulas. And I, and at one point I had gone over to Nate and I said, Nate, I have uh, a Brazilian black that molted into a male and he was looking for a male to molt with uh, a two to mate. And mine was already an adult. And I said, I'd be glad to give him to you. Yeah. 
if, 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 if that's going to help your, with, with your husbandry. Um, and I did, and I was telling him about, I said, I, I also have a colony of, of only three, uh, monocentropus balfori. Yeah. And I said, I got this culture nine and blue. And when I pick them up he's like, Whoa! and I was like, <laughs> You, you're Nate Spider guy. What are you, what are you squeamish about? He goes, Deb. He never calls me Deb. It's always Deb. Deb, <laughs> don't you know that they have a really potent venom? I wouldn't, I wouldn't even pick them up. And I'm like, I even always picking them up. Yeah. Because they run like cockroaches. I'm like, oh no, you're not escaping me. And the way I picked them up, which was as irresponsible as you can possibly do, is if they were scurrying, I didn't want to put my hand down because it can scurry right off my hand. Yeah. Or they can go under me and move so fast I couldn't get them. And so, and I have shag carpeting. So shag carpeting and tarantulas disappear. <laughs> I can imagine. And so I, if they were running, I would scoop them like this. Like, yeah. a, like a claw in a machine to pick up toys. <laughs> and he was like, oh man, what? And I was like, what? And he's like, they're venomous. They're highly venomous. Yeah, they're going to think you're a bird. <laughs> yeah. But I would pick Trying them up like them. that. And they never threat posed. Yeah. And it was easy to scoop them. And when, and when I scoop them, of course, I would put them in my hand like this. Yeah. And hold them like this. So that by the time they found a way to get out and I opened it up, they were already in their enclosure or my hand was down in their enclosure. Yeah. Um, and that was only because I was cha- changing, changing the substrate or I got, um, I wanted to make their hide caves more palatable to their natural environment, that kind of a thing. Yeah. As I was continuing to learn things. Um, and I just didn't know better. Because all I knew was they were fast as fuck. That's all right. I knew. <laughs> and I'd seen videos, and I hadn't seen videos where someone mentioned the venom. I just saw people, they're moving fast, and they were always cupping them, cupping them. Like, just grab it! Grab them! Yeah. Grab it! <laughs> scoop! Scoop! And now I know why people were scooping them in cups. But they yeah. never mentioned in any of those videos, hey, these, these little critters uh, have a potent venom. Yeah. Um, but I have never, I have to admit, in all the years of having tarantulas and scorpions, I've never been bitten. I've never been pinched. I've never been stung. And I've had um, scorpions that would have been considered on a scale of one to 10 that were that were wild caught um, on a scale of one to 10 in aggression and 11. And I'm still picking them up. Yeah. Because I found a way. I found a way. My fascination and my love says I don't want to stress you out, but I need to clean this out and I'm not, I don't have a scoop. I don't, I, I always use my hands. Yeah. But I have a way of not necessarily taming them, but making them uh, be aware that I am a climbing apparatus and that's it. I feel you. Yeah. That's a, a, a debate that happens a lot. It seems uh, in the, at least in the, like the tarantula and scorpion hobby. I don't, I don't think it's so much in the, like the snake hobby, but just the ability to tame tarantulas. Like everybody, has this desire it's not like, possibly it's like, not possible to tame yeah i mean they'll, they'll even claim like no I've, I've tamed it down and it's like I, scientifically i don't think so I, I, but you yeah. can make them comfortable you can kind of like get get used to them and be able to read their body language i guess and yes know how to how to act and react so that you're not stressing them out and you kind of like it's not i wouldn't say that you're, you're taming them but it's like you're, you're reaching an understanding or a mutual respect like they know you're not there just to eat them uh, you know, maybe they can kind of recognize that you're, you're possibly not a major threat. Uh, and then, and then you're, you're being, you know, moving slowly or, uh, purposefully, 
and and they can they can kind of recognize that I feel. Absolutely. And what it requires, I think the first thing that it requires of you is to be humble to their power and to be humble, um, you know, and have and, and be privileged that you are raising it to have this quality of life because of your fascination and giving it the space that it needs and giving it the food that it needs. I, I get a little obsessed with mine because I till the soil. I aerate the substrate every week. Okay. I leave them in there, but I aerate the substrate every week. So it's just not flat and down because I use Lexon, which is a type of plexiglass top. Okay. So that it holds in humidity. Gotcha. When people come into my apartment, the first thing they go is what the fuck? Cause it's so warm. <laughs> so I don't, I've never had to use a heat lamp because I keep it at an ambient temperature of between 80, 82 and 83 degrees year your, round. Your apartment, 80 degrees. 82 to 83 degrees oh, wow. year round. <laughs> Are you sure you're not part reptile? I know. I might as well. I, I shed <laughs> like one. But, That's um, wild. But yeah, because I, I want to keep all of them comfortable. Yeah. I want to keep all of them comfortable. It's more important. I can, I don't care. I'll, whatever. Yeah. I'll, shakes, I'll wipe down or whatever. But it's more <laughs> important to keep all of them comfortable in the, in the temperature that they're meant. And then I just recently got fascinated again with snakes after they, they passed Victor and Lizzie passed. It was a little heartbreaking for me. And um, I said, no, I'm going to stick with the scorpions. And then eventually the tarantulas came into um, my space of, of just pure love and fascination. And the bigger they were, the better they were. And then um, not better, but the bigger they were, the more fascinated I was because I just go bigger, go home because I came from that area when it came to snakes. And then I said, well, you know what? I know I don't have the space in a one bedroom, but I'm going to find the space because I, 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 I'm determined to get um, a Western hog nose. Nice. Those are and the snakes. thing that really caught me was it was a rear fanged colubrid that was venomous. And I went, ha. <laughs> and then the second thing that caught me is them feigning, you, yeah. know, they're, you know, death. And I was like, ha. <laughs> and mine does not. Rocky, which is a who is a Western hog nose, does not feign because he was captive bred. Yeah. And he's been handled enough that he is comfortable. Gotcha. So he has no reason to do it. And nor would I stress him out in order to, to right. amuse somebody. You know, that's the one thing about my, my critters. I think that's another reason like you where I keep them out of sight is because if you're afraid or you're not interested or it's you're squeamish, you don't have to see them. Yeah. Because and I've been asked to, to take them in public. Like, why don't you do this event and go to this event with them? Like, because they're because they're not circus animals. Right. And I'm not there to exploit their being. Yeah. I'm there to just, I, I just enjoy them and I'm fascinated by them. And, and like I said, once one took over the other, the fear was completely overwhelmed by the fascination. Yeah. And I was never fearful again. It seems to be a common thread with most tarantula keepers. It starts out with, you know, arachnophobia or just like a, a severe fear. And with just the tiniest bit of knowledge and understanding, like the switch goes off and that fear almost immediately turns to passion. Like, yeah, it's like you open a door to a room, like you were scared to open that door for so long and you finally open it up and we're like, I got to explore this. I got to go in there, you know, and then it it can become, you know, just almost overwhelming. I mean, it it took over my life. I mean, it was a slow progression over 20 years, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. And it's always exciting when I see, especially like, you know, some young kid. It's terrified of spiders and like you can see that light switch go off the first time they handle it or 
they, they learned that one thing they had been taught their entire life is incorrect and this is the actual truth and yeah. you know it's, it's it's fun to watch that and i love being part of that i yeah. love that opportunity to see myself in others in which I see a fear or, or or a desire for something. I was at a reptile reptile super show and this little boy was like, I wanted a scorpion. He knew nothing about them. He's never had one. And his father was very hesitant. And I talked to his dad. I butted in and said, I'm, excuse me, I was listening in and I have them. And let me tell you, blah, 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 blah. And I said, and, and uh, let me show you a way to handle them safely. And, and, and he said, okay. And I talked to his son. I said, when you, if you are going to clean out and do not play with them because they are not animals, they're, they're, these animals are not toys. They're not there for your amusement. They're there for your, your, um, your opportunity to take care of them. See it as a big, beautiful science project to see how well you can take care of it for its life yeah. and its life expectancy. Because if, if someone tells you his life expectancy is 10 years, how well can you take care of it so it reaches those 10 years? It's, you know, that was my, my, my key for him. And I told him the to scoop under the substrate. If the scorpion is here, reach under the substrate. So the, the, the scorpion thinks he's still on land. Yeah. And then you slowly lift your hand up. And then you just wiggle the sand or you wiggle the dirt where you wiggle the, you know, the coconut fibers from under you and he's in your hand. Now, when you put him down and do this, just a slight tap and tap and tap until he goes off from the back. So you're not near the pincers. You're not near the stingers. Just very gently, not a tap like this, but just a little like this. And he goes back down and he did it. And his father was like, all right, I'm going to get them this one. <laughs> so it was really lovely to see even the father watch that um, experience take place yeah. and watch the son do it with that kind of care, but to also be a part of that uh, um, opportunity so that he's influenced to be care and be careful. Yeah. You know, it was, was really wonderful to have his father go, yep. All right. We're going to get one. That's you awesome. Know, that's, yeah. that's, that's really awesome to, you know, to be a part of that. I agree. Yeah. And there's so much like just viral content out there of people you know, pretty much harassing tarantulas and scorpions, like trying to get them to uh, just, you know, have uh, give a threat pose or slap or try to bite. And, and you know, it, and I understand that to some people that might be exciting to see, but I feel like for, especially for young kids, like someone like yeah. my son's age or something, they see that and they kind of think that's how you treat a tarantula that you have as a pet. You know what I mean? Like that's, I know when I got my first tarantula, uh, I, I was just out of, well, I was in college, but this was like, uh, just out of college. You know, I'd had it for a few years, uh, had it in my apartment. It was sitting like pretty much, I mean, it was a, you know, a crappy little one bedroom apartment. So it's like the living room and the bedroom. And then there's like a half wall, kind of like an Island that separated it. <laughs> that was the dining room, I guess. You okay. know? So it was like on that, that little, that little shelf wall that separated the kitchen from the living room is where it's little terrarium was. So people mm -hmm. would come over and we'd be hanging out and drinking or partying or doing whatever you do. And there was, there was this one, like one girl in particular that would come over and hang out a lot. Would she just felt like the tarantula was staring at her the entire time. And I was, you know, I didn't have the heart. I, I, I could have just said, well, it can't see that far away. <laughs> like you're fine. But and I was like, eyes are on the top. Yeah. I was like, no, it's looking at your toes. It wants to eat your toes. Cause she was always walking around <laughs> barefoot <laughs> and like, we just, just to mess with her. But it, it seemed like, 
I, I would, I mean, I'm young, you know, 20, maybe 21. And we would, we get drunk and somebody would somehow we, we would start talking about the tarantulas and, and what I, I would like open up the enclosure and have a little paintbrush or something and, and just kind of, you know, mess with it until it kind of would give a threat pose just to impress my friends and try and look cool. You know, looking back, it's like, man, that among uh, many other things, like as far as the husband was concerned, it's like, it was really bad. That was really irresponsible, you know, kind of embarrassed about that. But like, but the you only- shouldn't be. I'm going to be your alter Negro. Okay. The reason you shouldn't be is because there's a learning curve for each and every one of us. And no one should judge anybody's learning curve, especially judging your own. Because that was a part of the stepping stone to who you are now. Someone I admire and respect. Someone who's still teaching me stuff. Someone I'm still fascinated to learn from someone who had to take those steps in order to be someplace else. So in order to be someplace else, you need to be where you are to go. This is such a powerful experience from the past. And I'm growing my wisdom because of my respect for these amazing sentient beings, these arachnids and these invertebrates that I can use that not only as my stepping stone, but a teaching tool for those that are younger coming up with their fascination. I can use this as a teaching tool of what I was and who I am not. I can use this as a teaching tool of respecting an animal. I can use this as a teaching tool of looking back and reflecting what this does to an animal because I have enough of them to know what a stress is and what can be an end result of a stress. So all of that is a par for the course of learning. So you don't need to be embarrassed by that. Embarrassment is a state of mind that describes a situation that the two don't equate because it's really not an embarrassing thing. It's just that you've told yourself that, so you've accepted that in your linear thinking. And this way you judge yourself as a limitation. But you've been so unlimited in what you put out and the content that you put out on a regular basis that it is, dare I say, uh, some of the most impressive things I've ever seen online when it comes to that, which is why I became a fan, number one. (laughs) And number two, who you are now is who you became based on all that stuff. So all of this stuff that I'm seeing now and getting to know you now came from that. That's true. It came from that. Yeah. And it's because you have this powerful place now. um, And and if someone said, where did this powerful place come from? It just doesn't come from your fascination, your love and your joy. It came from the things that you did that said, I will not do that again. Yeah. I did not, I didn't have a full understanding. I didn't have a full appreciation. I didn't have a full respect, but the full respect you have now came from not having it, a lack thereof. (laughs) So that's nothing to be embarrassed by. In fact, I would throw away the embarrassment completely and say, this is my teaching tool. That's a good point. Yeah. For everyone who hasn't gotten to the place that I'm at yet, this is my teaching tool and your path. Yeah. I mean, that was like the closest I've ever come to getting bit by a tarantula was doing that one night not a hundred percent painted like maybe not even 40 percent paying attention wow uh, you know turn around look at my friends like isn't this cool and then it just like you know flew up the, up the little paintbrush towards my hand and i dropped it was like whoa that was i probably shouldn't be doing this that's not a good idea wow. but it was like a little rose hair tarantula it wasn't anything that was gonna put a hurt on me but unfortunately my personality i guess i i tend to only learn after making mistakes like that's kind of been the story of my life make a terrible but mistake like you've learned hey, after those mistakes. let's not do that again that was dumb so you, you but you've learned after those experiences because again each and every personality that comes to this planet in this form has their own method of learning 
Who's to say yeah. that it comes from books? Who's to say that it just comes from education from someone else? Who's to say that, it, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I do. So yeah. we all have our own way of learning. And that's what makes us truly unique. Yeah. I mean, I've learned so more through experience. ourselves than... And just allow that experience. If you do that time and time again, it still leads you to this path that you are. You're a light in the world of, of, of these beautiful creatures. You're a light and a beacon because you stand for something. You don't just love them and are fascinated by them. You stand for something. Because I've watched the other videos in which you're just narrating them with footage, like a documentary. And they're beautiful because you stand for something. And so no matter how you learn, the learning is the end result. And that end result is what makes you as powerful as you are. Well, thank you. you. Because because you stand for something. You don't just do what you do. You have a a great purpose. to lead people in the opportunity for joy and respect, fascination, education, information. Um, and, and it all comes together. It's a culmination of who you were to who you are right now. So there's nothing to be embarrassed by whatsoever. And the way you learn is simply the way you learn. Without judgment, it's simply the way you learn. Mm-hmm. Because because the bottom line is, Richard, at the end of the day, you learn. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have the responsibility and the respectability to help others do the same. And that's part of the reason I started doing this was just because I knew when I started, there was, uh, there was a severe lack of information. It was, it was hard to find info. And then when you could, a lot of times it was outdated or conflicting. And I was like, I want to, you know, I have these years of experience. So I, I feel like uh, one of the best things I can do with my life is try and pass that along in an easy, easily digestible format, mm-hmm. you know, to try to help people coming up behind, you know, and, I don't think I, I always succeed, but I try to do it the best I can. Uh, and it's fun. I enjoy it. It's, it's uh, you know, kind of like teaching, but not really. <laughs> it's like they're not in front of you. So, you know, it, it's it's an interesting uh, job that I've kind of fallen into over the past few years. Yeah. But yeah, your, your, your videos are just, like I said, it's really great. You have a great presence. You have a great energy. Um, you make the information and the opportunity accessible. It makes people feel like I can, I really want to, I I love this. I I really want to, I really want to, I really want to be a guardian. You know, I want to be a responsible and respectable guardian. I want to be a guardian of these animals. I want to be a caregiver. You know, that's what it really is, you know, and you're really sharing that and inspiring people and people get inspired. I got inspired. Yeah. You know, I'm like, Oh man, he's this dude. (laughs) Every time I click on a video, I'm like, this motherfucker. <laughs> it, it kind of blows my mind you're that you're watching my everything, videos. your hand movements, even your hand movements. Yeah. Like, I pay attention to everything that you do, even <laughs> and, 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 you know, your setups and stuff when, you know, and the videos you've taken. Cause uh, at one point there was one where you were talking about shooting either for somebody and doing a commercial for somebody. Yeah. And when I saw the end result, I was like, he's so badass. <laughs> Dude, sign my tits. <laughs> you know, Thanks. I was just like, he's so badass. He's so cool. You know, so it's <laughs> it was like when when Nate Spider Guy told me he was, I was like, what? You know Richard? <laughs> I'm like, oh dude, I'm such a fan. So I was like one degree of separation. And so, yeah. you know, I I, I went to Nate. It was like, tell him I want to do the show. Please tell him I just I I, I want to do the podcast. I really want to do the podcast. 
And I said it just from the perspective of someone who is a novice, but has a fascination and joy and, and, and still has that, you know, that, that power of enthusiasm and love where I may not have the education, but um, it, it, it definitely balances out with my desire to learn and my fascination and my joy and my caregiving. Um, and so, it, you know, it balances out in that regard because I, I, could, I can have a conversation with you, continue to learn and still build upon the power of my fascination and respect for them. Well, thank you. I, th- I feel like my reaction when Nate told me uh, that you were a customer and that you were wanting to come on the podcast was very similar. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> You're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> really? I mean, Mad TV was like my, I, my favorite show back in the day. Like I, I right. always enjoyed it and <laughs> I mean, I loved it. So it was like, and, and then since then, like you just keep popping up over and over and over again. It's like, I was, you know, watching, I'm not trying to like nerd out here, but <laughs> Star Trek, deep space nine, you had a, a, uh, a little role in, uh, you're like a, the voice of a captain. Yeah. Um, and then uh, of a Starfleet officer that was yeah. landed on the planet. Yeah. That was huge for me. Yeah. That was huge for me. That was exciting. I mean, but I'm, I love all things Star Trek. So it was kind of like, Holy crap, this is Deborah from Mad TV. This is so cool. Yeah. And uh and that came after after a, a, a um a casting director told me they weren't looking for ethnic voices. <laughs> really? And um my uh my 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 agent at the time, my manager at the time was very upset at that when I told yeah. her. She was she was very upset and she's like, she needs to know. No, you've seen what she does and you know what she's done on Mad TV. You know the parodies, you know the voices, you know all the stuff that she's done. No, she's going she's gonna to submit her for this. Submit her for this, trust me. Yeah. And little did I know that it was taking place at Paramount Studios and that um, it was being listened to and directed by the audition itself was Rick Colby, who was oh, yeah. director of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And I was... I was in an area before we got to the soundstage sitting with women and they were all um, physically the type of the Starfleet officer who was just a voice. They were all white middle-aged women. Yeah. All of them. And I went, I don't have a snowball's chance in hell. (laughs) And I went in there and what completely washed over me was the drama and the pathos and the passion that I had about who this person was, where they were and what they were doing there, you know, before they passed. Yeah. And, um, and everything else disappeared. And that's when I think voiceover felt like, um, a a, a power tool because I, I realized that this wasn't just voiceover. This was being able to tell someone's story. Yeah. Passionately and um, and uh, w- with such awareness and with such a grace and respect to the script and uh, and to their life because they were real for me. And every time I do voiceover, whoever I'm voicing, whoever comes through me and uses me and uses my voice box yeah. and my diaphragm and my vocal cords, it's their story and it's supposed to be told. And I'm charged with giving them as much respect and love so that people have a greater idea of who they are because they'll be fleeting. Yeah. They'll be fleeting. 
Yeah. And um, and that's and that's that kind of clicked for me, um, like my passion for arachnids and invertebrates. And once it clicked, I realized that it wasn't just voiceover. It was being able to tell a story, you know, because I didn't need the hair. I didn't need the makeup. I didn't need the wardrobe. I didn't need the lights. I didn't need all that stuff to tell the story. And so um, I started allowing myself to just be authentically more me. um, Just personally. Because with uh, film and television and on camera stuff, you know, there's certain presentations you also have to have. So you don't want to get tattooed. You don't want to get overly pierced. You don't want to stretch your lobes, you know, certain things. So I was me, but I still had a, you know, tried to find that balance between me and the me that's supposed to look a certain way in order to get a role. But with voiceover, I started being more me, which is why I ended up going, you know what? I want to get more tattoos and I want this to be on my body and I want this to be on my body. And, and I want to fill up this negative space and I want to do this. And, you know, the places that I said I would never do, I became fearless and did anyway. Yeah. Um, and my hands were the last bastion of clean skin. And I realized psychologically, as well as physically, I'm telling myself without saying it out loud to anyone else, you're, you've moved away from on camera, pretty much. I, I shot a documentary for HBO today. Um, but other than something where somebody wants me as me, yeah, because I'm a talking head, I kind of, you know, and I've had auditions here and there and I go like, I don't want them. I just, I've turned them down. Yeah. Every on-camera audition for a sitcom or this or that or a pilot, I've turned down because I said, do they, do they know what I look like? Number one. Yeah. And, uh, and it's easier to hire someone who already looks like that than to cover me up to do that. It's fine to cover me up on a mad TV. To be Oprah in the fat suit and the, you know, the prosthetics. But why hire someone who looks like me to have to cover them up when you can hire someone who already looks like that? Why spend the money? Who am I that you can spend that type of money on in your production? Yeah. I really don't care. Um, but with voiceover and with performance capture, it gives me that opportunity other than, you know, the markers on the face and the, and the mocap suit and the, uh, the HMC, which is the head mounted camera. Um, that allows me to be transported because it's a playground where you, you see it in your third eye. And, and, and so I'm still doing all the things that I love to do, yeah. but I'm doing it now in a volume that allows me to um, enjoy the vista of voiceover. So it's everything from performance capture for video games, voiceover for video games, um, straight announced for television um, and for TV shows and network promos and books on tape and ADR and looping and, um, and, and, and a number of animated shows on everything from HBO to Disney, um, from Disney plus to Nickelodeon and from Nickelodeon to the cartoon network. So, I mean, uh, what more could I ask that the older I get and I'm 60, I'm 60. So the older I no get, way. I find that, that momentum is only growing. Yeah. Yeah. It's only growing. I do, oh, awesome. I do a shit ton of video games. Yeah. I, I saw that when I was looking through your uh, bio uh, after, yeah. after we spoke. I was like, uh, just, I was like, Gee, there's no way I can mention all of this. This is like pages <laughs> of credits. This is amazing. I can't believe yeah, you're 60. I love my video games. That, that blows my mind. I felt like you were 40. Oh, you were my age. You look my age. Maybe I was <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you know, good black don't crack. <laughs> so, 
So no, you you mentioned all these tattoos that you've got, and and we Again? I, the the last uh, I just recorded a podcast yesterday with a uh, tattoo artist uh, that specializes pretty much in tarantulas and spiders and snakes and stuff. So I was I was curious. Do you have any spiders or snakes tattooed on you? Yes, I do. You do. What do you have? The very, very, very first. Keep in mind, I'm 60. The very, very, very first tattoo I ever got was a tiny scorpion. And let's see if you can see it. Yeah, I do. Right there. Yeah. The very first one. That was at the age of 25. And that's like right in the, is that, that's in the fold of your arm, right? Like in the bin? No, nope, no. Here's nope. the fold of my oh, arm okay. right here. Gotcha. But yeah, that was, this one was the very first one. Did it have like that tribal stuff around it or was it just? Nope. Scorpion? That was because I, I only got one. And I realized when I walked into Joe Kaplan, who was a very well known tattoo artist at the time. Yeah. Joe Kaplan was in Mount Vernon, New York. Um, tattoos in New York city were still illegal in the, uh, late eighties, early nineties. Okay. Um, it was still Ill- considered illegal. Um, but the cops never really bothered tattoo parlors too much. Um, because there, there, there wasn't a lot of health department code on tattoo parlors because they weren't supposed to really exist. Yeah. And so the cops never bothered them. Um, Health codes were mostly for restaurants and stores and things like that. So I went all the way out to Mount Vernon, New York, um, which is past the Bronx, a little okay. further out. And so I got it from a guy who was well known. If you if if you follow tattoo artists, especially the older the older guys, yeah. old school guys, was Joe Kaplan. I went out to his place, and I walked in. And it was my very, and it was just like, <laughs> and when he finally did, he did that and he did a, this, this rose, okay. you can barely see it now, but this rose in the gotcha. center. Yeah. Right here. I see that. Very cool. And what ended up happening was he said, you'll be back in about two weeks. <laughs> he had your number. He had my number. He said, I've been doing this. He said, kid, I've been doing this a long time. I can see when someone is addicted. Yeah. I can tell. <laughs> I could tell the moment the needle is off your arm, that rush you got of, <sighs> he goes, you'll be back in two weeks. <laughs> and I was back in two weeks. And I said, how did you know? He said, because I know how long a tattoo that I do takes to heal. And once it's healed, that won't be enough for you. Yeah. He was right. (laughs) And it's just been an ongoing, you know, process ever since, huh? Yeah. And it's interesting because I never saw it as a process because I always told myself, no, you're working on a TV show and you're hoping to allow your career to do other things, a sitcom, movies, indie features. So you don't want to get too many. Yeah. We kept getting more. And then someone said, you know, Zulu who was a very well-known tattoo artist. Roni Zulu said, um, you know, you're getting sleep. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm just getting this piece and this piece and this piece. Right. But that's almost like 
if you put them all together at your upper arm, that would be like a half sleeve. No, 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 no. See, I was you couldn't tell a black woman anything. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just getting a little bit here. No, no, I'm just gonna put it in here, just here. And I realized that, you know, I kept getting more and more and more and more and more. And Mad TV covered them up sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes I'd wait for a hiatus or put it in a place where no one would be able to see it. Or characters like Lita and Melina, the two Latina chicks, it was okay for Lita to have it. Um, and they would spray paint me for Bunifa and they would spray paint me for Oprah and then put me in a fat suit. Um, and they would spray paint me for Whitney. Um, and, and, you know, cause I was already a regular on the show. Yeah. So they took those things and I said, okay, well I need to keep bargaining with them and saying, okay, I won't do anymore because I don't want to make anybody else's job harder. So I was negotiating this fascination and love and trying to quell it down and tamp it down for, for money, for a job, for work because of my obligation, because of my contract. Um, but once I realized when, once I did the sound of her voice, um, I didn't know when the next time I would do something that had that feeling to it, but I knew that there was more, more coming down the pipe eventually. Yeah. Um, and a little did I know that what would come down the pipe was that, um, so much so that it would seduce me, um, into not wanting to be on camera anymore, but it has definitely seduced me into not wanting to be on camera anymore. And I don't want to be on camera anymore. I understand. And you get to get tattoos. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. I've, I understand. My whole body is done. <laughs> my whole, my whole, my whole, I'm not going to show you too much when you're married, but <laughs> my whole body is done. I'm, oh, wow. I'm like done, done. Yeah. My underarms. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I went, Balls to the wall, and I don't even have any balls. So I, yeah, I, it was, and I love them. I look at them every day, and I, I just absolutely love what I look like at the age of 60. That's very cool. You know, and I love what I'm doing. I yeah. love what I'm doing, and it affords me to be able to have it. And let me tell you something. It's interesting how being in the entertainment industry affords you a certain privilege, mm-hmm. because I'm always bragging about my scorpions and tarantulas. I'm always talking about it, talking about them and sharing them whenever I can. Um, part of it is because I just really love them and they're my babies. And so I have a whole photo album of what I call my babies on my phone Yeah, and sharing that with people and then watching people's minds get blown when I tell them about that I handle them and what they mean to me so that they can have a better understanding of having sentient relationships that are symbiotic or sentient relationships in which, um, there is a joy and a well-being, a sense of well-being. Like they don't have to love me back. I don't need them to love me back. But yeah. if they have a sense of well-being that they can live out their lives to their full extent, and all of them um, are females. All of my tarantulas are females. They all have names too. Every yeah. one of my critters has a name. Yeah. I, I had all mine named for a long time, up to about 200. And then I was like just having a hard time coming up with new names. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, this is uh, this is getting difficult. So I started just uh, just having the species name on there. But you know, if if it's one that like has a a bit of a, I don't want to say like a personality, but like we have a connection. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it, and I can kind of get a vibe from them that I'm like, well, you get a name, you know. But a lot of times, just the little spiderlings that are running around, it's like we'll we'll wait till you're a little bit older. The babies, yeah, yeah, we'll figure that out together. <laughs> but I, this is a yeah. question I've I've always wondered, and I, I have a feeling that my perception uh, uh or assumption of of hollywood 
is a lot different than the reality. But when you're, when you're out there and, and you're, you know, in the, you know, hanging out with people or whatever, and you're talking about your babies, you're showing them pictures on your phone of your scorpions and your tarantulas. Like what, what are people's reaction? Like is they think it's the coolest fucking shit they've ever seen. Yeah. They think it's the coolest shit they've ever seen. See, that is not what I ex- would expect. I would think they would Some be people the exact get a opposite. little, And I, I think that's also the, uh, uh, there's a certain privilege to being in the entertainment industry where people's responses would be different. Yeah. Than if I were just someone on the street. Um, and at the same time, there's always the theory that, that it wouldn't be different because that creature is just a fascinating and beautiful animal that some people would, would, be freaked out about, but then you're there to quell that fear or you're there to, to, to give them what your experience has been with them. Yeah. Which kind of tamps down, uh, you know, and trumps their, their fear or their ick or their yuck. Yeah. You know, and I love being able to tamp that down with just uh, a sharing an experience. So they go, I, okay. Because a lot of their yucks in their mind are, the way it crawls, it's creepy. Yeah. You know, with my snakes, people would think they're slimy, you know, and it was like <laughs> far from. Right. Far from. And so it's being able to, to, to have them remove something. They don't have to touch. They don't have to see it in person, but it's removing something that was a thought that they turned into a reality that, that doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, a falsehood. It's 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 removing those falsehoods. Yeah. And I think that my prejudice just comes from the way that especially tarantulas are portrayed in movies and TV. Like they're they're always the villain, they're always the bad guy, they're always dangerous and deadly. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like what is what does Hollywood have against tarantulas? It's like what I always find myself asking. Like it's not against tarantulas, it's it's using it as an abject terror and fear for others. In other words, it's about that person's fear. Right. So but, we, we we don't pay attention to the tarantula. We pay attention to their fear. Yeah. But I mean, do, are, are they playing off people's fear of spiders or are they actually instilling a fear of spiders into people? Like that, that's, that's where I always, like my daughter, uh, granddaughter, she's three. And you're what? I have a little granddaughter. Say that again. <laughs> I am a grandfather. <laughs> Step-grandfather, technically, but yeah, my, my wife. No, grandfather's a grandfather. Yeah. The only steps are the ones she you take had, to get in your house. She was 20 when she had Maggie, and then Maggie okay. had Rosie when she was 20. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of lines up. Um, wow. It, it kind of it was a shock when it happened. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a grandfather before I'm 40, but, you know. Wow, it's, but that's cool, but who... Come on, who is the coolest forty-year-old grandpa you would know? Come on, <laughs> yeah. But like, I've you know, she spends a lot of time here and stuff like that. So I, you know, I'm always showing her the tarantulas, and she likes watching me on the TV. You know, <laughs> like I'll play a YouTube video or something, and she'll see my face and be like, "Oh, I want to watch that." Um, so like, I've tried to like, you know, kind of instill this respect and fascination with spiders. And she's got little spider stuffed animals, and she likes her spider shirts, and you know. I'm, totally brainwashing this little baby uh but no because it's already within them but she watches these disney movies or you know some of these like cartoons and stuff that she watches and then there's like this big mean evil spider and and i can i can see in her eyes like she's confused she's like wait i know this isn't scary like why are they 
why are they trying to make this out to be a man eater? You know? So it's, you know, and then she'll like act scared. And then I'm like, no, spiders are fine. They're not going to hurt you. And yeah, it's, it's a weird kind of situation I'm in right now. Like it feels like well, sometimes I'm battling media. But they, they, again, it's, it's designed to sell money off of a fear that a lot of people already have. You know, so it's an exploitation of a fear that already existed as opposed to creating the fear itself. That's true. And yeah. There's a lot of people that are afraid of anything that's creepy or crawly or slimy. Yeah. So snakes fall into that. Tarantulas fall into that. Scorpions fall into that. Centipedes fall into that. You know, that kind of a thing, which is in movies, why they enhance it with sounds that are absolutely ridiculous. Like a hissing <laughs> sound like. Yeah. You know, you know, that I'm like, these aren't rattlesnakes and those don't even sound like rattles. It's like, yeah. You know, and it's like, what? <laughs> rattlesnakes don't sis, 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 sis. Yeah. You know, they, they don't have the, 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 the power of vocal cords to, and they don't have teeth to, where the air comes through that way. They don't, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I but, know. But it doesn't make a difference because they're they're again they're they're enhancing the idea that a sound goes with the look. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's something I've struggled <laughs> with. Uh, like when but I made I, the first little mockumentary thing, a little documentary on YouTube, I caught a lot, I got some flack from people because I I loved nature documentaries. I watch them all the time, and I was like taking notes because I I knew this was something I wanted to try in my basement. I was like, I don't know if I can, if I can pull this off, but I'm going to try. So I was watching and taking notes and noticed almost anytime they had an animal on screen, it, it was almost like I sometimes didn't even notice it, but there was a sound that accompanied the image, whether they're like walking through grass or they're breathing or, you know, and then when I was watching ones, anytime they had a tarantula or scorpion on, there was always these like just weird, almost alien kind of sounds that were coming. So I, I made that little documentary on uh, the Arizona blonde tarantula. And when it would like, you know, crawl across the dirt, I tried to put in some sound effects of, you know, feet on dirt when it was eating kind of this like crunching, slurping sound. And people were like, <laughs> that's too much, man. Like they don't make that noise. <laughs> I was like, I was trying to enhance the visuals with audio, but I, I, you know, went a little too far, I think. No, but what's, what's funny about that to me, I hadn't seen that, but what's funny about that to me is that type of enhancing could have made them more human. Like, yeah, <laughs> and, and 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 I think humor is a way to diffuse a lot of things. I mean, that's what I loved about being on Mad TV. Humor is a way of diffusing a lot of of those things, uh, you know, things that are uh, the ridiculous as well as those who take things too seriously. Yeah. And and for people's abject terror and fear, it sort of um, yeah, it sort of diffuses that. I'd like to see you do a video where. Yeah. Because then again, there are also these videos, you know, the flip side of the same coin, you also have these videos. And these, like, there's a, a one, I can't think of the name of it now, but and I subscribe to it and I haven't seen it in a long time because I think they don't do as many videos as they used to. It's a little jumping spider. Yeah, Lucas the spider. Lucas. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. It's really adorable. We go boop and he boops the little dog. Just, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of a thing. So for the one end of the spectrum where there are people who are having abject terror and say, I don't want to rid it. I was talking to somebody the other day and, and I was letting them know about my, my babies. And um, she only told me about her fear. Right. Like she had no other experience in her fear, fear, fear. And as I was explaining 
uh, to her my fascination and why and how it came from an abject terror, I said, I'm not here to change your mind. I'm just here to give you more information to go with your mind. I feel that. So it gives you an opportunity. It just gives you for opportunity to to supplement your belief and experience. Yeah. yeah that's a good you way know, to do it. It just supplements it. I'm not here to change your mind, you know, because my ego doesn't need to change your mind if that's who you are. But I want to make sure that when you are saying certain things that that they're factual, because like everything that you want to believe in your opinion for yourself, how you feel about it and your fears, that's fine. But if your feels are based on something that's that's um, that's not factual, then I am going to step in and I'm going to let you know. Yeah. I'm not going to say your fear isn't unfounded, but I'm going to tell you that's not the fact. Right. It, it's hard to sometimes separate. That, so. Yeah. Separating feelings from facts can can be difficult at times. Like I had a... Uh, <laughs> A professor that was like, I, we were talking about fear and I, I mentioned I was afraid of spiders and he was pretty much like, no, you're not afraid of spiders. You're afraid of the unknown. Like you just don't know anything about spiders and that's where your fear is based. And that that's where I got my first tarantula. He just kind of challenged me like, yeah, have a pet spider, <laughs> keep it in your dorm room. I was like, all right, really? try this out. And, and it works. I mean, it, it took a while, but I got accustomed to it. I learned a lot about it. And the more I learned, the more I was realizing that all of these things about the spider that I thought I was afraid of aren't, they're not real. That's just like stuff I saw in a movie or I made up in my mind or I heard other people tell me, you know, it's like, I just assumed a big, large, hairy tarantula was, was deadly. Like if it's that big, like if a small spider can put a hurt on you, a large spider could really hurt you. Like that was just how my logical thought process was regarding that. And then you learn, different species have different venom potencies. It's not based on size, you know, it's, it's more based on evolution and, and what their prey and, and predators were in that situation, how they would defend themselves. And so it was, the more I learned, the less afraid I got more respect I had for them. And, and it's one of those like life lessons that if I was wrong about spiders and it turns out if I just learned more about them, I might have a completely different worldview on it. Like, how is that going to apply to other aspects of my life? You know, like whether it's, uh, you know, uh, types of people or, you know, philosophies or, you know, it's just like, it, just, it, it, it was a small thing that I don't even know if that I, I'm going to have to contact that professor someday and just be like, Hey man, you changed my life. <laughs> just want to let you know. Cause it, it really kind of opened my mind up to, uh, you know, what else it just had me questioning, like, what else am I wrong about? Yeah, that's, and that's very, very powerful. That's a very, very powerful because then you carry that with you. It becomes um, you've been indelibly marked by his influence. I would say that you changed your life because you always have the choice. But he indelibly marked your experience to want to change your life. Yeah. And now you are continuing to change the lives of others or be a part of their journey for their own change as well and their own education and information. You know, that's that's really powerful responsibility. And it's a beautiful one because you're not taking responsibility over changing their lives. You're taking a, a responsibility over your fascination and everything that you've learned this far and sharing it with others, which is very unselfish, a uh, very unselfish and very giving of your time and energy and efforts. Well, thank you. Um, it's, thank you. You know what I've, I've really been curious about since I talked to Nate and you brought you mentioned it briefly, but you were talking about the enclosures that you build. 
uh, when Nate was was ta- telling me about it, he said that they were very elaborate and beautiful and well done. Like he was just, you know, he just was raving. He was very impressed with the amount of time and effort and expense you put into your enclosures. Uh, like when when you're building them, and I can't wait to see pictures of them. Uh, but when you're building them, do you like research the area that they're like? How, how do you decide how to build this enclosure? Are you trying to go for a naturalistic look or just kind of something that looks cool? Believe it or not, they're very simplistic. They're very simplistic. I I had shelving units made and I knew that I wanted to custom make uh, an enclosure that would fit that. And I also knew because I was keeping either desert species or those that needed a higher humidity because they were South American, um, that I didn't want to use um, a regular screen top yeah. because my consideration, my, my, my consideration was them not climbing up and getting a leg stuck and broken and f- falling off right. and that they don't get their fangs hooked in and can't get out. Um, I didn't want to add any more stress to them um, in a situation that I had no control over when I wasn't home. Right. And so with Lexon tops, it keeps the humidity in and it keeps them from climbing upside down to get their hooks into the screens and, and, and that kind of a thing. Um, that was number one. And I knew I wanted a slide because it was, I knew that they would be less inclined to try to get out or lift up anything. Yeah. Um, if that be the case, because I've had one that was an escape artist regardless. I've had one <laughs> little tarantula named Pascal and I have two um, brachypelmas. I have a brachypelma homori and I have a brachypelma smithy. Okay. My B smithy is, um, it, it was an escape artist twice. That's Pascal the Rascal. Okay. <laughs> and he escaped twice. And I kept thinking, son of a bitch, I don't know where he is. Okay. Well, I don't, I, you know what? I throw my hands up. This is the second time. And I, I thought it was closed and it was closed. And I have to check the top, but there's no point in checking it. Now he's gone. He's gone. One day I was cleaving the shelves and just dusting them. And there he was just sitting, staring like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like I'm fucking staring at you. You want to come get back in? No. If I wanted to get back in, why would I leave? And I was like, fuck, man, come on. And he was like, okay, well, if you can catch me, if I don't bite you, bitch, if I don't bite you first, bitch, if I don't hair you, I'll hair you in the fucking eyes. I'll hair you in the, I will fucking flick, 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 flick in the fucking eyes. And I was like, no, motherfucker, I'm getting you. And I picked, got that motherfucker up and I got him back in and he's been fine ever since. But when, when it comes to my enclosures, I go, okay, a desert look. They like to burrow. But with the substrate that I'm using, like the excavator clay that I'm using, um, what can I do so that if they don't really burrow, how can I make a enclosure that already has that complete, that they'd feel comfortable going in? And I kind of play with a couple of concepts, which is why I gave Nate stuff, because it was like, all right, I'd observe them every day because they're in my bedroom. And then the light comes on because they all have these puck lights that have uh, a timer to them. So I went, okay, I observe them every day, make sure their well-being, food, water, I mean, water, cleaning up dead crickets, that kind of a thing, and observing their behaviors um, and knowing when they uh, look like they're going into a pre-molt, that kind of a thing, knowing when they're not using their hide caves. But instead of panicking, doing the human thing, trying to put my human emotions on them, they're, 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 won't, they're not using it. They must be stressed out. They must. I will go to research. I will, I will, I will um, go to Nate and I'll go to you. And I'll go look at your stuff and the stuff in the past. And, okay, let me see if he's hit this subject. Okay, let me just watch. And then I'll just go down the, the, the 
Richard Tarantula Collective uh, rabbit hole, and I'll just watch anything and everything anyway. But then I'm, <laughs> I'll always look for how can I find you know what's going on here so I can be educated about it. Yeah. Okay, they say okay, they're fine doing that. Oh, okay, Richard says they're fine doing that. Okay, okay. Nate says okay, blah 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 blah. Okay, so they're fine. So um, that they normally stay out. All right. What about desert plants? Okay. So everything is just keeping it really simple because what happens is when you get too elaborate, at least in in my what I used to do, I'd get so elaborate, and I realized that that elaborateness was all for me, and it takes up more space than it than they have to crawl and hide and just simply be and yeah. feel like they can mark out a, a large enough of a territory for themselves the way they want. And so I went from all these really highly elaborate setups which were beautiful and decorative to look at, but didn't give them the space. And I realized I had to come to that conclusion. You're doing this for you. You're doing it because you like looking at it every day. It's true. They have to live in this. And this is really about what makes them comfortable when they're out in the brush, when they're out in the desert, let's go online and just look at where they'd be. See how simple that is. See how simple that rock, see that piece of, you know, plant right there. See that scrub and, you know, and the brush, scrub brush, see that, look at that. The rest is all land. Yeah. So keep it simple and keep it elaborate because you're not trying to impress anybody, least of all you. Right. Um, <laughs> Tarantula doesn't so, care. It, it just yeah, wants to live exactly. its best life. Uh, I think that's and, something and, that a lot of people kind of screw up when they're building enclosures is like they, they want they want to create the entire landscape. Like they'll, they'll see a photo of this is the area that they come from. And, you know, it's a big, wide shot. So they're like, well, I got to have something that's like a tree and something. You know what I mean? They try to get all these features in there. It's like, no, you want to cut out like a one foot section of that. And that is what you want your enclosure to be, you know, like a rock, a hide, a plant. (laughs) And it took me this entire time. It wasn't until, believe it or not, a month ago. Yeah. When I got just what you're saying. A month after having them that long, a month, because I was constantly, constantly, constantly going, how can I upgrade? How can I make them comfortable? How can I make it elaborate? How can I make sure that they have this for this? And if they want to go here to do this, what if I get, um, I know I will get those um, magnaturals and I'll give them layers. No, they don't need that. You know, you know, but what if they wanted to, what if, what if, what if, and I said, but now you're going into your mind, you're not going into the education. You're not really doing the research what is necessary because they don't care. Yeah. They really don't care. Give them what they need, give them the basics that they need and, and continue to monitor them in the basics and see if they're all right. And they are, they're fine. And they still look beautiful, yeah. but I kept it as simple as possible. The last one I got was in a Phonopelma annex, uh, the, the Texas tan named BB, BB Kling that I got from Nate. It was an amazing opportunity to have this, this beautiful animal. And she's also a female. BB is female. And he was like, they really like to burrow. So you've got to make their substrate deep. Yeah. But the way my enclosures were and those shelving units that were already kind of preset, I didn't have the space to do all that. So I said, it's important that they burrow. Or it's important they have that space. So what I did is I used the, um, the excavator clay, but I inclined it. So at the bottom where there's less, it would be less heavy to, to have to lift down and take out the dead crickets and stuff. And so yeah. I inclined it and I put in cork bark, half cork bark that took up a great deal of the space in the, you know, f- for that. Cause it had still a lot of space in the front. Yeah. And I put um, a desert plant and a water dish. That was it. But what I did was when I put in the excavator clay, I made sure I only sprayed the exterior. And so 
on the inside where it goes in, there's still enough substrate to burrow down in while being in that enclosure of the cork bark. Gotcha. So it gave them the option to just go in. And then I read that in the scrub and and scrublands and stuff of Texas, that they'll find stuff that's readily available as well, instead of just only burrowing. Yeah. Like if they can find a, a, you know, a a burrow that was already made and nothing's in there anymore, they'd investigate and make sure there's nothing in it. They'd be fine with that. Yeah. That's very true. And so I put the cork bark, but I also made the substrate high enough and un, uh, un, wasn't wet enough that they could burrow down in that substrate as well really? as be inside the cork bark. Yeah. So they could have that option and not be seen because uh, they don't, they don't come out that often. Yeah. They, re- they truly <laughs> are um, ambush predators. Right. You know, when they, when they talk about scorpions or tarantulas being ambush predators, the, BB is truly an ambush predator. Baby, BB molted and I didn't even know it. I had to, you know, <laughs> one day I was like, flash, like, I'm like, it's, what is that shadow? Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, molted. That is really great. And the, I can't get the mold out. I can, <laughs> but I don't want to disturb the, uh, the, the enclosure. I don't want to disturb the hide cave yeah. in order to get that out. But I didn't know if you know this, Monocentropus balfori. They will take their molts after they've molt and they will kick it out of their enclosure, out of their hide space, like they're taking out the garbage. Yeah. It's the only tarantula so far I've ever seen do that. Mine will put them right. Uh, like I have one communal and there's two water dishes, and the one closest to the door, they all dump their molts in that in that water dish. Really? It's like hey, this is the spot where you come and collect these for us. Wow. Now, have you ever picked up with your hand any of your uh, Balfouri? Not intentionally. Uh, I occasionally when I'm doing a rehouse or something like that, I, I also had another communal uh, sent to me. And during the unboxing, they just, instead of going into the enclosure, they went up my arm. So <laughs> I've done that a few times. Uh, but yeah, I, I never intentionally try to handle them. I, I wow. rarely handle just mainly just because I, I just, I worry I'm going to lose them. You know, <laughs> like I, if I, if I was in a spot where I, you know, I, I didn't have a wife and kid upstairs, I might not care too much. I, I would like, if I ever am able to move this into like a studio setting, I might handle a little bit more. Um, but I've just had a couple of close calls, like where I was handling a tarantula, everything was fine. And then they bolted and they got away. And just the way I have everything set up here with all these enclosures. And I mean, it's like, it, you just see the enclosures and the shelves, but there's also like the other part of the room. That's just all the lights and cameras and you know, stands and like just all the video equipment. And if they get back in there, uh, it, it's really hard to find them. <laughs> There's so many places for them to hide stuff. So I, that's always my worry. I'm fascinated. Which species uh, has that happened to you or did it not matter? That they ran away, got away uh, yeah. a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, I had an uh, Acanthoscuria geniculata. A uh, big one. That one took That's off. That's my baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I have an Acanthus geniculata. Yes, I do. I have a Brazilian white knee and her name is, oh, my her, her name is Samantha. Sammy yeah. Diva. Yeah. She was out for a couple of days. Like. How she, big was she? Mm, she was probably was about four inch, five inch. I mean, she was. Uh, and they both got away that fast? Yeah. I mean, she wasn't full grown, but she was get. She was pretty close. Uh, she was definitely sub-adult size. Uh, but the problem, like I had this, it's pretty much like a coffee table I was shooting on at the time and she crawled off the side of it and I set the camera down. By the time I moved around, she had gone under the table and went back out the other side. And then from there went under the, under the, like the racks, 
And on the other side of that, there was a couch where my kid plays video games. And then she went under there and then she was gone. I was like, oh, I, I had the couch upside down. Did she get up inside it? Like I couldn't find her anywhere. Uh, and apparently while I was busy looking at the couch, she was just walking along the edge of the wall and like went out of the basement, under the door, into the garage, found her a couple days later by the washing machine. And I just kind of standing there. I was like, what are you doing over here? <laughs> like I couldn't even, and the garage is even more of a mess. So like, I just got lucky that she was out in the open because she could have, she could have lived there for years. <laughs> it would have been fine. All the random, all, yeah, <laughs> I got yeah. so many you random crickets that escape. Around, like, yeah. <laughs> I did a, uh, I work on a Netflix series, and um, and the first season did very well. So I really hope it comes back for another season. But it's called, it's an animated series on Netflix called Dogs in Space. I have not heard and of that. Was, I'm sorry. I, I haven't heard of that one. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, it's called Dogs in Space, and I have two characters in the first season. And um, at one point, one of the characters that I played named Kira, she talks about the animals on this planet and you have to be careful of this and this and this. And they were trying to find this elaborate scientific name for an animal, uh, you know, that's supposed to be otherworldly and spacely. And I said, I don't think most people would know this. So I used Acanthoscuri geniculata. Oh, yeah. But what about the Acanthoscuri geniculata? And then the Acanthoscuri geniculata will come out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you have to, what you really have to worry about is Acanthoscuri geniculatas. And I use that term. I use that <laughs> scientific name for the person. And nobody knew. Nobody knew what it meant. That's it was awesome. just something I was like, oh, I got a name. I got a name. Because because they're looking for, a, a, a you know, a, a, a kind of a weirdish kind of alien kind of species name. And I yeah. just used Acanthoscoria geniculata. And I said it so quickly that it's like, you'll hear it too very clearly, Acanthoscoria yeah. geniculata. Um, and I use that <laughs> in the first season yeah. of uh, Dogs in Space. Uh, if you see an, if you see that episode, I think it was the first episode. Oh, that's what I'll be watching tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the first episode that I used it. Very cool. Yeah. I had uh... but, um, I love, I love, I love her. And I've actually been able to pick them up when I need to like, like uh, I try not to disturb them too much. If I'm, if I'm just aerating their soil yeah, or re-moistening it. Um, I try to be as ginger as gingerly as possible so that I don't have to take them out of their environment. Yeah. Because, um, my Acanthoscari geniculata or, 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 um, Samantha, Samantha, Sammy Diva is, is, is skittish. And so is my, um, so is my Lassiodora Paribana, mm. my Brazilian, my uh, Brazilian giant pink salmon breeder. She's the most gentle. Really? Oh my God. <laughs> She's so easy to handle. Mine was such so a spaz. Easy to handle. She is so sweet. She gets skittish at first and she will, she'll be the first to, to, to automatically flick. What I do is I hold and then I wave. Yeah. And then I'll pick her up. And she is, once she's on me, she is so gentle. She's yeah. never threat posed ever once. And Some I had man. her as a, as a sub, a sub adult. I got her as a, I got her as a sub adult. Nice. As a, no, I got her as a juvenile. Very cool. I think she was already at her second instar or maybe third instar when I got her. Um, and she has been very, very gentle. I've actually been able to pick her up like a claw yeah, and hold her legs gently and then put my hand under this like this. I've actually been able to hold her like this. 
That's how a lot. Have you seen how and like she uh, will not move, and then I will be able to put her down gently, just like yeah. this. I've been able to do that before. Have you seen how scientists will will kind of just pinch tarantulas, like when they're studying them in the lab, like they they kind of come down from the top, uh, and it's almost like they're grabbing around the carapace. They kind of like be like pick them up and flip them over like that, and they're just you know it's usually like with three or four fingers, and then they just wow, cut them in I, the claw. I do that with my hand, but I've never done it with like three or four fingers. Wow, yeah. I guess they're so used to doing it, yeah, all I, the time. But it, it also makes me wonder how comfortable or how stressed. I wish they could test the stress levels of yeah. of an animal that way. Uh, I'm sure they're probably I mean, not do they worried care about that. that. They don't like it, or or does it not matter, or they put it down, but. Because yeah. my concern is, you know, I really don't want to stress them out. So when I do this, even after she's tried to flick me, it's very slowly with one hand and release. Do this and then just back down very gently. And I even open my fingers slowly. Yeah. And sometimes after I open my fingers slowly, she won't move because she's back down and she's comfortable and she doesn't even move. Yeah. So I go good. Um, and my tarantula, my, my scorpions just recently, I, I rarely pick them up. Um, especially when I'm cleaning out their, their enclosures or when I'm tilling their soil, I only choose to do a deep clean once a year where it's like, I get out all the substrate, the old substrate. Um, and because during the year, uh, what I do is I make sure that I mix a couple of things. So they definitely have the eco earth, but I also use uh, gardening charcoal. Okay. And I use, uh, what is the other gardening thing that I use? It's sort of white and it looks like little stones. And, um, and I add it in because what it does for soil or any soil type mixture is it helps to aerate it and break it up. Okay. Um, and I forgot what it's called. There are two kinds. Uh, There's some that are tiny and white, and I don't use those because I hear that that mixed with too much soil, and if it's too moist, uh, gives off a fume that is not really healthy for them. But um, vermiculite. That yeah, <laughs> it's like look, it's in my brain somewhere. Where is it? <laughs> vermiculite. Back in the day, so, that was the only thing they kept tarantulas on. Like back in the really? early '90s, yeah, it, it, that was the you keep them on vermiculite. <laughs> or vermiculite that's that's that was the substrate i think it was even in uh that book um the tarantula keeper's guide or yeah it was like uh like the tarantula keeper's bible essentially there's like four or maybe five editions i think I know, i'm sure there are at least four but one of the earlier ones strange. that suggested ver- vermiculite as a as a substrate i mean wow. it's, they've since been like yeah it's not a good idea because they can't burrow in it stuff like that but i mean that yeah. was also like they only suggested a couple of inches and an incandescent light bulb on top you know like there was it wasn't the best information, but at the time that was, that was accepted good husbandry. Yeah. Well, that's like, I said, interesting how things evolve because I, I think because those who are really, um, are, are really passionate caregivers are always evolving mm-hmm. their caregiving methods and there's, and their substrate ideas. Cause like I said, for me, it was always like cocoa fiber, cocoa husk, cocoa fiber, cocoa, cocoa, cocoa fiber, cocoa, cocoa fiber. That's what I was, cocoa, cocoa fiber. And I realized, well, that's not enough because sometimes it gets a little too moist. So you always want to have that to be aerated, yeah. what aerates it. And then I found out about um, uh, potter's charcoal, charcoal, like yeah. gardening charcoal, which really is great because what it does is it absorbs. Because if you can't find certain 
um, of, of the prey, depending upon what it is. Yeah. It, it really leaves a bad smell in there um, because it's it's it, it's decomposing. Yeah. And so I, I never want to have that smell in there for too long. I don't want that. I don't know what kind of bacteria it will bring or what kind of insects it will bring or mites or what might be crawling in it or living in it. That was microscopic and then got bigger, yeah. you know, um, that turned into these little ringworms or whatever. So I'm always cautious about aerating it uh, on that level. And after the, after a feeding, uh, being able to remove whatever I can find as best I can, and then trying to find the rest by aerating the soil, yeah. but making sure that whatever moisture is there drains properly and has an opportunity to evaporate a little better with uh, definitely the the uh, the gardening charcoal and the vermiculite and a combination with that and the um and the and the uh, eco earth for nice. sure. That's 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 been my go to. That's yeah. definitely been my go-to for a, a long and if time. I want a little bit more natural looking than what I'll do is I'll do magnolia leaves. Yeah. I'll do the dried magnolias, but I will crush them up really fine and make sure there's no stems so that they're not sharp edges to them whatsoever. Yeah. Um, that I don't necessarily, I will use that for tarantulas uh, um, and only a, a, a small amount of that because they really don't need that. But I won't necessarily use that for the scorpions because I don't think the same substrate is necessary except for the proper drainage and the proper aeration, which would yeah. always include and the and the proper uh, removing of the bacteria and the smells and the rotting bodies, which is um, uh, the again the charcoal, the gardening charcoal. But it's got to mm. be specific charcoal, the gardening charcoal. You can't just get briquettes, right? You know, you're gonna. <laughs> No, it's got to be garden charcoal and um, the vermiculite. I found a, a big difference without having that because, again, like you said, you were just told vermiculite and that was supposed to be good husbandry. Yeah. Um, and I was told eco-earth and that was enough. But sometimes the soil got a little too packed with moisture and it had nowhere to go. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it was a little too moist. So I'm always constantly when I'm tilling it and aerating it, uh, putting my hand in and make sure that it's um, there's no droplets and that my hands aren't wet. Um, and that the substrate falls off easily. So I do that pretty much weekly. Yeah. I mean, cocoa fiber is probably the most used substrate for tarantulas, but I don't think I, I can't even tell you the last time I bought some, like I, I, I got, I had some real issues with it growing mold, uh, like mushrooms and, and stuff like that. And it was like, I didn't have that issue for years, but then uh, sometimes they're just spores in the cocoa fiber because the coke, I mean, they use cocoa fiber to grow mushrooms. So Sometimes they'll just naturally be in there, but it seems like some strain of fungus was made it into my basement and started growing in enclosures. And now, and then it just, it just spread, you know? So it was like, no matter if, if, a, if the cocoa fiber got a little damp around the water dish or something like that, these bright yellow mushrooms would pop up and they weren't dangerous or anything like that to the spider, but I, I just didn't like the way they looked. And I got so tired of fighting them. I was like, all right, we're getting rid of all the cocoa fiber. And I just dumped it all. And I just started experimenting with a whole bunch of different, you know, because there's because at that time, a lot of companies, businesses started coming out with their own tarantula substrate, uh, you know, and and was trying all these different ones. And some of them would work, would work really good for more moisture dependent species or more burrowing species like it was perfect for fossorials, but it didn't really work too well with an arid species. So then I kind of got to a situation where I had like six bags of substrate <laughs> and sometimes I'd mix them and I was like, this is getting too complicated. Uh, wow. But just recently, I started working with this uh, company called the Bio Dude. Are you familiar with them? They're out of uh, Houston, Texas. No. Mainly, he makes. Uh, I mean, it's just like for bioactive enclosures. He has the plants, all the 
the wood, the leaves, the springtails, all the different substrates and stuff. And it was mainly for amphibians, or I guess mainly just snakes and geckos. Uh, and they started doing dart frogs and things like that. Uh, but just recently, they started thinking about this product called Terra Arena. And it's, it's essentially substrate for arachnids. And they even has like whole little kits. So you can like go and, and uh, you say like, I've got a, a Theraphosa Sturmy. He's got a whole kit for is with certain substrates and bioactive shots and plants and lighting and like everything you need to create uh, a bioactive enclosure for this plant, for this animal, you know, for this tarantula. Wow. So some of them are more like, um, uh, you know, more, more like jungle kind of, you know, high humidity type of uh, setups. But then he also has ones for arid, but it's like the same base substrate. So I'm not spending like hundreds of dollars getting the entire kit, but I really like using the Terra Arena just because. It's good if you just need to throw some substrate in enclosure uh, that's dry and it has a very natural look because it's a mixture of, I mean, there's a little bit of cocoa fiber, there's a little bit of peat moss and, and just different soils and, and sphagnum moss. I mean, he's got a, you know, it looks like somebody went out into the woods and dug up, you know, when you look at like soil from nature, it's not just dirt, you know, it's not just one thing. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. So it has that look. So it, it's good for that. But then if I also wanted to do like a, a bioactive, kind of damp environment i can mix water in with it add the bioactive shot which is like all of the beneficial bacteria and microorganisms and stuff that you know once they get wet they start growing throw in some springtails and now i have a fully bioactive setup for you know whatever moisture dependent species i need so it it's wow. like one substrate but it had it kind of checked all the boxes off for me and I've, I've been using that lately and i really like it but it's also it's also kind of expensive so like i feel bad telling you know somebody like you just got this brand new oh, yeah. tarantula for 20 bucks. The substrate you should use is 30 bucks. Like that seems yeah. <laughs> a little ridiculous. <laughs> but you know, what also works. I also, because I'll, I'll experiment too. And because like I said, I do see them every day. They're in my bedroom and I do monitor them. The other thing that's really wonderful is being able to mix a combination. Sometimes it's a 50, 50 combination between a moist, not wet, but a moist eco earth and reptisan. Or or um or um not reptisan, but it's called uh um the excavator clay. Yeah, yeah, I like the excavator clay. I've I've used that in a lot of, especially my burrowing species. Like I'll just mix some with the substrate because it kind of gives it a little bit more. It kind of holds its shape a lot better. Absolutely, and keeps a certain amount of humidity because of the eco earth. Yeah. But the eco earth would dry out, but not overwhelmingly so. And then you have that you, you know the stability of the of the sand and i think maybe it, had you had a combination which you know you didn't know it at the time of the eco earth mixed with with the reptisand or i keep saying reptisand but but it's the 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 excavator clay yeah that might have prevented uh a, a different moisture uh or or lack thereof for those uh fungi to grow it might have have um discouraged them from growing yeah possible you know, one thing that is the only downside to the excavator clay is that it's deceivingly heavy. You know, like you look at it, you mix some in there and it's like, wow, this is adding a lot of weight to this enclosure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why when, with, when I added them to my desert enclosures, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm just going to do a, a desert enclosure with that because yeah. what I had done prior to that and it was still dry was, um, Uh, forest floor yeah dry but i said that's not really a desert enclosure just because yeah. it's a dry mix that it says forest floor dumbass <laughs> um 
So, you know, yes, it's dry, but it also kicks up a lot of dust. And I That's didn't know true. how it would affect them. Yeah. So I said, nope, we're done with that. And I just went with the excavator clay and I said, you just don't put in a full even amount of excavator clay. You you incline it. So that they get the opportunity to have an incline and there would be just enough in a back. Sometimes you can just do one corner yeah. where the excavator clay is so that they can use that to burrow, uh, create a cave, or you can put it something on top as a cave. Um and then they can burrow down in this way, you know, yeah. on an incline. But you can only do one corner. So if excavator clay works for you only because it gives your 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 critter the opportunity to uh, do what it does in nature in burrow, yeah. then consider one quarter of a corner where it's high there and everything is low. Where it's like I can come out, I can hunt, or I can go in, burrow down at this high peak, and come up and then out, or come up. And allow them to come in so I can, you know, grab crickets or grab whatever I want, grab a prey. Uh, I wanted to question you about something. I had some questions Uh-oh. for you, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> Turning it around on me here. Yes, please. Because I had them from the <laughs> beginning. But uh, uh, I got into talking because I was like, oh, my God, I'm talking to Richard. Um, but when it comes to uh, feedings, uh, how important or not important is it for a varied diet? for tarantulas i mean i'm not a scientist but i mean i kind of believe in balance in all things and i wouldn't want to eat just the same thing for my entire life so i have a a chosen like main source of of food for my tarantulas because some i have some tarantulas that are finicky like some that will never touch a roach you know some that will never touch a mealworm some that just don't seem to you know for whatever reason they I'll drop a cricket in there. They have no interest in it. But if I drop a roach, they'll pounce right on it. So I kind of like have an idea what tarantulas what you prefer, which food. But then I also try to mix it up. Um, I actually have a list uh, that I got. I don't even remember who, who sent it to me. But it's like all of the different feeder insects and, you know, pretty much like their nutritional facts. So like how much moisture they have, how much fat, how much protein, what vitamins or other minerals. So, you know, I, I, I try to mix it up, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> like I predominantly feed crickets, you know, like 60, 70% of the time. Uh, but then I try to mix it up with uh, occasionally some hornworms or some mealworms, some dubia roaches, uh, just, just partially for just to kind of keep it, them entertained, I guess, uh, or, you know, kind of add that like, you know, variety. Here's something a little bit different. Um, I, I don't know if there's any scientific basis to if that's good or not, but you know, in my mind, that makes sense, you know, that, that they should have some kind of, uh, you know, kind of in, engagement with something other than a cricket every single time. Okay. Um, okay. And my, yes. But now my question in, in that regard is there are certain ways that that those prey can, do you use a tweezer to feed or um, do you make sure they're near their enclosures so they can spring to get it? How would you do that in case um, one of the insects is a burrowing insect and can disappear? Yeah, see, that, that's why uh, uh, you know crickets are like the main source that I go with because I can just dump those in, check back in a couple hours or the next morning. They're going to move around enough. They're not going to burrow. They're going to get the tarantula's attention. When it comes to like mealworms, 
those I usually tong feed or else if, uh, if it's an arboreal and I can set it inside a web tunnel or something, or even if a sorial, if I could drop it down there, uh, their little, uh, their hide or their burrow, I'll do that. But you know, I, I don't like the beetles that the, the mealworms or superworms turn into. I, I don't, cause you know, they can bite the tarantula and, and put and the tarantulas won't eat the beetles. They'll just eat the, the worms. So those, I try to always make sure I, I visually see them feed on it. Same with the hornworms. Um, but that's mainly just because they're so expensive. I don't want them to go to waste. I feel like the tarantulas, you're charging me $3 a hornworm. I'm going to make sure that it, it gets eaten um, or maybe now $2, how, but. How do you, how do you determine um, their appetite? And did you have to condition the experience of feeding them with tongues? If they're used to just, you know, uh, you know, just grabbing their own prey on their own and being am- ambushing it on their own without yeah. that. Do they feel like a tongue can be invasive because they don't recognize it and therefore they don't eat? How, how did you manage to do that? What, was there a technique that you did or do? I'm not really. Um, like when it comes to roaches uh, and sometimes even mealworms, when I will usually smash their heads before I drop them in the enclosure or try to tongue feed them that way even if they, for whatever, cause sometimes when you're tong feeding them, they'll strike it and kind of like pull it out of the tongs, but then drop it. So if that roach's head isn't, hasn't been smashed, it'll just take off running and get into the substrate and burrow down and you never see it again. Uh, or at least not for a while. But when you just kind of smash their head, they, they're still moving. Their legs are still moving. They're still kicking for a few moments, uh, you know, maybe like 30 seconds or something. Uh, but they don't have the wherewithal to, to start burrowing. So the, that's, that's one thing I do. Um, and then when, like, I, I don't mainly just cause I have so many tarantulas, I, I don't tong feed unless I'm like making a feeding video or something. Like some people give me some crap online in the comments. So like, uh, why are you tong feeding your tarantulas? That's dangerous or just super time consuming. And it's like, I'm, I'm only doing that in this instance so I can make sure that the tarantula is in focus. You know, I can find, this is the point of focus. That's where we'll hold the turret. We'll hold the cricket or whatever. So the tarantula will strike it. And it just won't be a big blurry mess. But and why do they say it's dangerous? Well, depending on the tongs that you use, like uh, a lot of the times I'm using metal tongs, and if the tarantula misses the cricket, uh, or it, one of its fangs hits that metal with enough force, it could crack its fangs uh, because the fangs aren't—I mean, they're not the strongest and you know material in the world, so the, it is it, they can break. So that's why uh, I usually will either use like bamboo, like those bamboo tongs. Um, cause that way those aren't going to break their fangs, but they also don't last very long. <laughs> you use them too much. They'll just okay. fall apart. Uh, or you can get little rubber kind of like grips to slip over the ends of the tongs that will give them some protection. Uh, so I, I'll do that as well. Uh, but that, that's one way just to kind of keep them from getting hurt. Uh, but there's also the fear when you're tong feeding that they're going to get the feeding response from the cricket or whatever, moving around, it's going to initiate that and they're going to go to pounce. But then they, just from the vibration of you holding the tongs or, you know, moving a little bit, they're going to think, well, the prey is still further up and they're going to end up running up the tongs onto your hand, you know? So that's something I, I always kind of be, uh, you know, worry about a little bit, but yeah, I, I don't think I've so much conditioned them. I just kind of learn their behavior. Like they've conditioned me, I think is a better way. You know, it's like, okay, I know that you're going to bolt. So I'm going to be very careful. And as soon as I see you start to move to strike, I'll let go. And kind of pull them back a little bit, um, you know. It, it again, it, I just feel like some of my tarantulas just have their own unique personality. So, like, I, I just know 
this is the type like my she re- recently died but i had a, a green bottle blue for years and she mm. loved crickets but she the entire time i had her she would never take a, a roach and i tried many different species of roaches different sizes tried dropping them in tong feeding you know anything and she just because they were like the easiest at that time i just had a whole bunch of roaches i'm like it would be so easy if you would just easy on me if you would just eat these roaches and, and she never yeah. had any interest but you drop a cricket in there or a hornworm and she'd be on it in a moment so wow. you know it's just kind of learning that you know learning their personality and, and how to interact with them wow. my other question is this i had a conversation with someone and we both have uh, giant pink salmon bird eaters. And he was telling me that he feeds his mice once every two to three weeks or a mouse or a small mouse or, a, you know, a little pinky mouse or something. It could be either a pinky or a, a fuzzy or something like that every yeah. two to three weeks. And my comment to him was that it may not be the best idea to do that on a regular basis consistently only because the calcium from what they eat can harden their exoskeleton. Was I incorrect? I've heard that a lot as well, but I've also heard other people say that there just hasn't been enough science and research to definitively say that. So I don't know technically if that's correct. Logically, it kind of seems to make sense. Um, I just know anytime I've seen that conversation come up, there's, there's always some people that are more experienced than me in the hobby that are like the science is still out on that. We don't actually have definitive proof that it's the calcium, but there are a lot of other dangers that you make it to where you, it's not something you want to do all the time. Mainly it's just the, especially if they're live, you know, if you're feeding a live mouse, no matter how small it is, it's very easy for that mouse to turn around and bite your tarantula and it could lose a leg or, or rupture its abdomen. Like there's a lot of dangers when you're feeding a, you know, a, a mouse or even some lizards, uh, to a tarantula the main reason i don't do it it really has nothing to do with the calcium fear but that's one of those things it's like if it is a possibility like it's not necessary to feed a mouse so if that is a possibility that it could be damaging why take the risk uh i just don't like cleaning up the mess you know like a tarantula it's not like a snake where it's going to eat the entire mouse and ingest it and then just have some poop that you're going to clean up like they're going to digest that outside of their body and and i don't know if you've ever fed a tarantula mouse or like a, a little house lizard or something, but it is a nasty, goopy, rotting mass of charred. I don't even know. It's like the bones and some guts and stuff. And it's just, they just leave that and it just starts reeking and smelling bad and it attracts mites and flies. So it's like, if you feed it a live vertebrate, you've got to clean it up almost immediately and hope that you got it all. Uh, or, you know, you're going to have some nasty smells coming out of there. Like I have a, uh, this huge post Lotharia ornata and it's like, I could throw in two dozen crickets and she'd still be hungry a couple of weeks later. Like she's just a big active girl. So I was, uh, occasionally I would get one. They were just the pet stores sold, sold them as like feeder reptiles, like feeder lizards. They're like two bucks. I think they're just essentially a knolls, you know, just like your basic green anole. And I would throw that in there. And I did that about every six months. I'd, I'd give her one of those. But I stopped after like the third or fourth time just because it was such a mess. It was so gross. Wow. Um, one of my issues that I have is that if I feed the crickets, because I've just been doing pretty much um, crickets as a staple because they've never rejected them. And 
They seem to be healthy and it's been a number of years. Yeah. So, but that's why I asked you about, uh, you know, the variation in that. Cause I know that that variation might go with other animals. I just didn't know how well that fared with scorpions and tarantulas. Um, but if I've done crickets, I've noticed that there'll be enough left over that I haven't gotten to, to get out that are live that have had these cricklets yeah. for lack of a better actual <laughs> word. And they're all over the fucking tank until they, they find the water dish and they all drown themselves. Yeah. Um, it's like a mass suicide that didn't mean to be a suicide. So I'm always concerned with how, you know, how many little hundreds of them, and I just don't know how to get rid of them out of the substrate until they just die on their own or get, yeah. you know, or get in the water and can't swim their way out. Um, is there a solution to that, or is that just part of the natural process of of feeding them crickets all the time? So you, what you're saying is that you'll drop in crickets for them to feed, and then they'll lay eggs that will hatch in the enclosure later on. Yeah, I, have, I don't think I've ever had that issue. Like I, but I have also time with me. I try to breed crickets, and, and like the males end up eating all the eggs. I mean, that's something you could do: find a male cricket and put it in there because they'll eat female eggs uh or the, even the hatchlings because you know they they want just their genes to be passed on i know that's one thing when you're breeding crickets when the females lay the eggs in the substrate you got to take it out of there and put it somewhere else before the males get to them because they'll they'll eat them before they hatch so but i never know like i said i'm when i'm feeding them it's male and female when i put yeah, them in right but obviously there are no eggs at the time yeah but it's sort of it's sort of like a catch twenty two to let them do it. But I don't know when they're going to hatch, or right. <laughs> if he's not the first to be eaten. You know, it's it's just it's all over the place, and yeah. I just don't know what to do. But I hundreds of them, hundreds oh of them climbing gosh. the glass, just hundreds of them, and then they <laughs> pop through the holes, and then I'm yeah. sitting there and I'm like, is that a cricket? They're all over my place. <laughs> They haven't infested the place, yeah. but you know, I will do something and randomly I'm like, yep. <laughs> see one crawling up the wall. I'm in the kitchen. I'm like, they're all over the place. Maybe and, just don't um, give them the I chance. Don't them. Yeah. I mean, like drop them in there. If they're not eating within an hour or two, pull them back out, put them back in their bin and then wait, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that, that's, that's another possible. Cause if, if there's not substrate, like if you just have them in a plastic bin with no substrate, they're not going to lay eggs. Like they, there has to be some kind of dirt. Uh, that's a, at a, you know, a specific moisture level, even I think, uh, but the stink that rises from keeping Jesus. them in this thing. Yeah. Just... That's why I keep the crickets in the garage. I, I didn't plan very well today. Like I knew we were recording this podcast, but uh-huh. I'm also leaving to go to Minneapolis on Monday, uh, to record some stuff with snake discovery out there. So I was like, I have this checklist of all this stuff I have to get done before I get on the plane. And one of them was, I need to feed the tarantulas. So like I, Got done editing a video and then spent like four hours feeding. And then when I walked back down here to get on here with you, I was like, I just put out probably 500 crickets into enclosures. And it sounds like I'm out in the woods right now. Like it was just chirping <laughs> all around. I'm like, this is going to be bad. Like it's all the podcast is going to be is just, you know, crickets chirping in the background. But like once, we're out in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason, I turned the lights on. They all got quiet. They're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> we always do that. Yeah, like, like little roaches hide, 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 yeah. hide, hide. Swarm, 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 swarm. Serpentine, serpentine, serpentine. serpentine. <laughs> but when it comes to feeders, like crickets, the, a lot of people hate them because of the smell and because of the noise. 
and because of the difficulty breeding, but they're they're not invasive like some roaches can be. I mean, you get some red runners, you get one pregnant female that escapes, and now you've got a roach infestation in your house. Like, that's not good. Yeah. I but, I tried red runners once. Yeah. Once. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've also tried. Are you familiar with black crickets? Black crickets? No. I mean, I'm familiar with like the brown Boy, crickets. Yeah, yeah, you're not familiar with black crickets and the banded Something crickets. Cool. Come on, man. <laughs> you never heard about black crickets? How come you don't know about black crickets, Richard? How come you know about the black crickets? Black crickets matter. They're larger and they're heftier and there's more protein to them than regular yeah. crickets. They're heftier. They look like crickets, but they're a dark, dark, dark brown color uh, and they're thick as shit. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're like built like a brick shit house. I have to check that but out. But that means the bite also, because if I'm in, if in a, a plastic bag, if I'm not home within 15 minutes, that plastic bag is deflated because they bite right. They oh, try man. to bite through it. Yeah, they make I'm enough cool holes that. in that plastic bag <laughs> to deflate the bag. I got to get them home. Yeah. But um, I've seen them sold here and I've purchased them a couple of times. Uh, and uh, they're intimidating mm. sometimes uh, to see whether they'll eat them or not because they move fast and they're really big. But they're they're a heftier form of cricket. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you can look them up or if you've ever seen pictures or I think you research them, but they're a great deal of protein and they're a heftier cricket. Hefty. Nice. And they 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 don't necessarily. Regular crickets, even the large crickets, aren't necessarily dwarfed by them. Yeah. But there is a significant difference when you put them side by side. You're like, wow, what is this? Yeah. It's exactly like a cricket, but it's heftier in every way. And it's a dark, 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 dark brown. Yeah, I know for a while there was the the brown crickets were the big thing, like the the American cricket, I guess. I don't know what exactly it's called, but they were having issues with it in captivity. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was like some kind of mite infestation that was happening a lot. So like people were completely eradicating them and then they'd have to get the numbers back up and then the mites would come back and they'd eradicate them again. So like, everybody kind of switched over to the banded crickets because they weren't having that issue, but they were smaller. Um, but you know, one thing I really like to use, uh, is like, it, it like, I, I like focus on the minerals and vitamins and stuff that the, the cricket or roach or whatever has. But I think at least for me, again, not a biologist, but just from my experience, I feel like moisture is more important, important sometimes. So like you can gut load them. So it doesn't really matter how, you know, is they got a full stomach of you know vegetables and stuff like that. They've been eating on for a few days before you feed them. Your tarantula is going to get all the vitamins and minerals they need. Uh, but uh, so I try to think of it as like a moisture kind of what prey, like what tarantula needs, what level of moisture. So like if it just recently molted, that's when I, I will usually drop in a hornworm or a wax worm or something like that. You know, something that's maybe doesn't have as much protein. Maybe, you know, it's more like a dessert, you know, it's like, this has a lot yeah. of fat and a lot of moisture and, you know, help kind of plump you up. And then we'll, we'll go back to a, to a more boring diet. I don't, have you, have you ever tried using uh, hornworms? The big green um, my tomato concern worms? with using those is, is just having them crawl around. I didn't know if they're, they were burrowing worms or not, no. or if they climb the glass or not. And uh, because none of them have ever had it. Uh, I, and of course I don't know anything about how to, to really, effectively tong feed without having my animal injure itself. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't want to take a chance unless I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, they're pretty, I mean, they're, they're now, big. Most importantly, because of what you were saying. Yeah. But um, 
I mean, you just drop it and like, I don't even tong feed those sometimes. Like I'll just, you know, I'll use the tongs to pick up the, the worm and then I'll just drop it. So it falls in front of the tarantula. And then as soon as it starts crawling around, like they won't burrow. Uh, and I don't think I've ever seen them climb the glass. I don't even think they can, but they okay. will climb up like cork bark or something like that. Like, especially if it's arboreal because they kind of climb up and then they want to like cocoon and, and turn into the moth or whatever that they're supposed to be. So, you know, that's, that's the one thing you got to watch out for. Okay. And is that only because the cork bark is, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you're referring to ar- just arboreal yeah. tarantulas so mm-hmm. they can climb up. Okay. Cause all of mine, the one thing is because of the way I had my cl- enclosures made and the shelving unit that I had made to go with them, I knew that I was only looking for species that were dref- definitely terrestrial. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's not something you would need to worry. And, but I mean, even if you have it in an arboreal and it climbs up in cocoons, it's still not a worry. Like, like I have an avicularia. She loves like wax worms and, and horn worms. They'll, they'll, you know, go through their little metamorphosis and then, then there's a moth in there and it's like, she enjoys eating the moths. I think more than like just the, the, you know, cause it's like flying around the enclosure and she just gets to jump and launch herself at it and pick it out of the air. So it, if anytime I have a moth come from one of those worms, I'm kind of excited. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> wow. And I've never tried horn worms before. Yeah, I mean they're I've great. They're especially just so for, expensive. Say it again. I said they're great, but like when you look at it's three cents for a cricket or two dollars for a hornworm, it's kind of like eh, it's not the most economical choice. But occasionally, giving them those, I think, is beneficial. When it comes to the occasions, uh, would you recommend giving them to the larger breeds rather than the smaller ones? Definitely. In other yeah. words, I have again my Lapsia, my Lassiodora paribana, um, and I have my Acanthoscari geniculata, they're two large ones. And according to Nate, uh, one of the larger breeds in, in, in the United States would be uh, the Aphonopelma calcotes and the Aphonopelma annex. Yeah. Yeah. I've had those, all of those have, have had a hornworm at least once in their life. Okay. Yeah. Now when you look at the hornworm, uh, I mean, it's a hornworm. So there's a horn on one end of it. You know, there's like a spike that sticks out. Now, Will I've, that injure them? I've never had an issue with it. Uh, I've had a few people leave comments worried that that might be an issue. Uh, but doing some research, I've seen a lot of people that just get like a fingernail clip or something like that and just clip that off before they use it as a feeder. Um, you know, so it, there's there's always that rare possibility because as soon as they're attacked, they start, you know, flipping around, you know, just like a, a worm would do. So there, you know, there's there's the possibility that, that could hit an abdomen or something and maybe puncture it. But I haven't had that issue before, but after seeing somebody was like, just clip off the horn and you don't have to worry about it. I was like, all right, that's what I'll start doing. <laughs> Cause it doesn't okay. seem like it hurts the worm at all. When you do that, um, you know, they, they don't freak out once you cut that off. So I, it may, they may not even may just be like a fingernail to them or something. That's like when I know it's weird. Like, uh, I, I, I just, I don't want to cause the feeders any more stress or I know they're about to ready to be get killed, but I don't want to torture them before they're, they're turning I'm into the food. same way. And the only time I have done something, which in some people's opinion may consider torture, is I've had a number of captive, uh, I've had a number of wild caught tarantulas, I mean, wild caught scorpions that I didn't realize were gravid. I've had at least six. Yeah. Um. I've been there that I've given from this, from the species, uh, the heterometrius cyaneus. Mm-hmm. I've had heterometrius spinifer. Um, 
I've had uh, I've had the pandanus imperator. So I've had from, you know, two Asian forest species, Asian forest species, as well as an African species, all be gravid and yeah. watch watch these little babies on their back and take all the pictures that I wanted. Um, and then when they came down and uh, they were becoming independent from their mother and started their exoskeleton started to harden yeah. and they were just kind of doing their thing, I would gather them up and I would, uh, I would decimate crickets yeah, piece by piece, to, but they would eat, you know, because they're not, they're not ready to hunt, hunt on their own. Right. Um, but they're ready to eat. It's like, you know, come on, kids, we're going through the drive through. Mommy's not cooking tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, even, and they, I watch them eat and they decimate the pieces that I leave around. But that's the only time when I'm like, okay, I pinch the head to make sure. And I kind of smash it and then pull the legs apart and then pull the body apart. And it gets a little gushy and it's all sticky on my fingers like glue. But yeah. I make sure those little ones eat because um, I don't keep them. I give them to Nate for the most part. Nice. Make a buck, baby. Turn a profit. <laughs> yeah. I even made a video on that, like, like talking about uh, feeding spiderlings and squirp squirplings. Cause not everybody has access to pinhead crickets or flightless fruit flies or stuff like that. So it's like, if all you can get are trick like crickets or mealworms, here's a way to feed your smallest slings. Uh, but make sure you're doing it ethically. You know, like I, I, I one thing I, I, it's what I like mealworms. I get the small mealworms and I'll chop them up. And then just drop little pieces in each of the spiderling or squirplings enclosure and they'll eat it up right away. But it's like before you chop it up, make sure you smash its head first. Like that's just common decency. Like put it out of its misery and then chop it up because you see people like it's still squirming around. They're chopping it up. I'm like, dude, that's just unnecessary. <laughs> like that's Why are you doing that to the poor animal? <laughs> Would it also be interesting to do research to see which insects actually feel pain and don't? that have right. pain receptors, uh, you know, are there, and there's gotta be, I'm sure there are factually insects out there that don't have pain receptors. I've um, heard that about crickets a lot. The idea of ripping, ripping an animal's leg off. Yeah. Like uh, crickets you know, supposedly don't have pain receptors. So that, that's why they're able to rip their own legs off to escape and things like that. Like it doesn't cause them any pain. And they eat each other. Yeah. But it's like, even if it can't feel pain, it can feel the sensation of being chopped up. Like it may not register as pain, but that's still dismemberment. And I don't, yeah. I don't want something to be conscious of that. Like, I don't want that karma, I guess. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you because it's just, it, 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 you know, it, there's an ethical idea to it, you know, yeah. an ethical concept to it because you're connected to sentient beings. It's like, I love the sentient being. I take care of the sentient being, but now I'm going to take this sentient being and I'm going to decimate it to feed this sentient being. Yeah. So, you know, I guess. There are things that we think about um, in, in terms of the balance of life and nature and the things that are natural and organic and then the things that we have control over in, 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 in supporting that balance of nature where man, um, humankind has, has a hand in literally in, in being able to um, do something that is as natural as possible in an unnatural way in terms of them doing it their own. They, you know, they, they're no longer the full hunter gatherer at that point yeah. because you are concerned for their safety and they're never really out in the wild. Their wild is a containment unit. Right. Um, and so I completely am fully aware and on board with you about that, which is why I always smash the head first. And there's, there's other, another moral kind of <laughs> quandary that's come up through keeping that I never expected. But when you mentioned you, you would get those, scorpions that were gravid I, I had an issue where i got some uh florida bark scorpions and 
I think I got like three or four females and they all turned out being gravid. So I went from having like a little communal when then like a couple months later I had like over two, like almost 200 Florida bark scorpions. And like most of them are really tiny and I got them all in their own little deli cups once they got crawled off her back and had them separated and stuff like that. But then it was like, you gotta keep them separated. Yeah. <laughs> Gave a bunch of them away, sold a bunch of them real cheap. And, but then it happened again. And then it happened again. And it was like these scorpions. And part of it was my fault because I was keeping them communally. So they, they got taken up. But it was like they, I, they were just pumping out babies. And it's like, there's not enough people out there that want Florida bark scorpions. Like I could, I could corner the market just on what they're pumping out. And, and somebody, I was talking to a couple of scorpion breeders, like, what do you do in these situations? Especially with like, uh, there's a lot of, um, oh, what, like, what is the name of that species? Uh, titimus or something like that, that they're, they're parthenogenic. So it's like, they're all female. Like there's no males. So yeah. It's like, if it's in a good living situation, it's just going to produce babies. It's like, what do you do then? And he's like, survival of the fittest essentially is what they were like. They're like, <clears throat> Like you just let them live like they would be living in nature. Uh, some of them will get cannibalized, you know, and then you go from having a hundred to having 10 and that's much more manageable. And I was like, yeah. that makes sense. I mean, that's what happens in nature, but like ethically, is that, is that good to do in captivity? Like I, I struggled with that for a while. Right. But uh, the, I think because the captivity that they're in is, is also an attempt to reproduce what they would be if they were in the wild. As opposed to, no, I'm just, I just keep in deli cups. Nope, I just keep in this container. And yeah. you kind of know b- by your setup and your intention for the setup, whether or not it's something where you're trying to give them the healthiest life possible by trying to create something that will uh, be an environment for their safety and their well-being from the humidity to the substrate, to the water, to the plants, to whether you're keeping a bio uh, you know, enclosure, that type of a thing. And I think as meticulous as you are, um, you've set up a section of nature for them where it is a space that is their truest environment. Yeah. Only we know that it's it's indoors <laughs> in a basement. You know what I'm saying? Only we know yeah. that. But they nature don't. Nature is brutal. And because you've been meticulous that way. So, you know, within this space of that nature, um, you're letting it have its way as opposed to saying, well, what's my alternative? Flush them down the toilet. What's my alternative right. uh, for people who don't want them or saying, no, we've got plenty of those or yeah. who say, I, you know, I'm new to the species and that's not what I really want. I want the thing that I saw on TV, you yeah. know, that, that type of a thing. So I think it is um, an organic culling and that's something your consciousness has, has to deal with. Uh, but you have to look at all of those things, including opinions of other people in, in terms of, yeah, you've created as uh, with your setups and everything that I've seen on in all your videos, you set up as much of an enclosure as you can. That is that mimics uh, the, the 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 balance of the of, of the nature, the world of nature, the, the natural world. Yeah. Um, and for, for everything that they would possibly be in that natural world. And you've made it even more safe because there are no predators. Yeah. And so at that point, um, it is. If I had to use a word, in my opinion, humane. Compared to other alternatives, when, you know, people are going, that's too much. We don't need the volume. Yeah. We're not interested. What do you do then? And so I think it is a humane thing to do because it's not your doing. Yeah. 
and it'd be better to allow nature to take its course. And it's better to let because nature the only take alternative course. is to put a hand in it and go, what, what the fuck do I do with these now? Yeah. Like last thing I want to do is just let them go. <laughs> like that was something somebody suggested. I had a bunch of black widows. Uh, she laid an egg sack and had a bunch of babies. And I just let them go outside. And I'm like, there are some black widows here in my area, but they're extremely rare. Like, I don't want to be the dude that introduces a hundred of them at the park. And now it's all over the news that the black widows have infested the park. It's like, that's not cool. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Cause it's now you're upsetting the balance of nature. Yeah. Whereas you're allowing the balance of nature to take place in a contained in a contained way that doesn't upset the larger balance. And I think, uh, um, even then there's a certain amount of hands off to it. Um, since they were allowed to in their own way, become gravid. Yeah. You know, you didn't try to prevent that. You didn't hybridize. So like spaying or neutering, you didn't try to attempt to do anything that might harm them. Mm-hmm. You just allowed nature to take its course. And I think when your hands are away from it, you're not manipulating the center situation and you're letting nature take its course. I think it's extremely ethical because uh, especially compared to the flip side of the coin, which is um, the other things you could have done. That's true. Yeah. But I know you wouldn't have done, but <laughs> what would you do if you said, all right, I'm going to keep a thousand deli cups of them. Yeah. And do what? And that would turn and to 5,000 okay, well, very quickly. Take care of them all. And the care that you give and the meticulous that you give, now you're taking that time even more to be able to have to do that for the yeah. responsibility of what? To let them grow, to do, you know? So I yeah. think uh, <laughs> have, letting them be gravid in the space that they are and having to naturally and organically call their natural space, I think is is part for the course of nature. Yeah. You know, you don't have your hand in that. So you're, it's not, an, I don't think it, it has to be an ethical question because your hands are, are off. It's laissez there and, and allowing nature to be what it is. So many, so many times we want to, we want to be involved in nature because our ethics are involved and our heart is involved. And um, we want to, we want to make sure everything's okay. But in nature, everything isn't always okay because there are predators and there's prey. Yeah, that's and then true. there's extra protein and there's the way we live. And I think culling is a natural part where it's like no one's going to destroy all of our resources the same way that sometimes I, I just I don't I don't think it's ethical. But I, I understand that in nature, certain things have to be culled because if there's a lot of deer and there's not a lot of food, they starve to death anyway. Right. And, and they suffer. Painful. Yeah. Much more <laughs> painful. Um, and so, you know, those are the things we have to get over because we have to look at the larger picture. And I think what you're doing and, 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 and allowing that sustainability to be organic is ethical. Right on. I like your mindset. <laughs> I'm going to use that. <laughs> well, it is, uh, we have crossed the two hour mark. So it is about time to wrap up this podcast. Woo! No, <laughs> mm. It is also th- after 3 a.m. here on the East Coast. So I'm struggling to keep my eyes open. Because <laughs> I know you're in West Virginia. So I here I am in California. It's just a little after midnight and it's 3 a.m. for you. But um, <laughs> I so appreciate your um, your drive and your enthusiasm and what you do. And and the fact that you, knowing that I was this was going to be a late night podcast to record, uh, are, are so diligently... And enthusiastically staying up to 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 allow me to be on it, which I really wanted to be. So, thank you for, thank for your you. indulgence. <laughs> I really wanted you to be on the podcast. So it's like yeah, I'm not going to pass up this opportunity. Yeah, and that's <laughs> and, so, yeah, because I and, and we both feel the same way because I was yeah. really geeked about it, and I was <laughs> I definitely went to Nate Spider Guy and said, "What can you do? I'm one degree <laughs> of separation now. There's no stopping me now." 
he didn't have to do much. He sent me a text and I was like, yeah. 100% <laughs> yes, like that. We are on board. Thank you. <laughs> so that was Thank awesome. Thank you so very much. It is, and, and, you know, maybe we could have you back on again in the future if uh, you ever feel like it. That would be a lot of fun. I'd like to keep talking because I feel like there's still a lot more we could talk about. But Oh, yeah. You know, one, oh, I don't yeah. think. I'd people... And I'd love to take you on a tour of my my little my 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 little babies and and their space and show you their setups and stuff and um yeah. uh, and maybe have one one of my babies on just to show you yeah. who they are and um yeah that would be awesome and if i uh, uh I'm, I'm planning on heading out to la uh sometime in the next year to do shoot some videos with nate so to do that then we should all kind of hook up get together that would be fun absolutely <laughs> that would be awesome i would love it would be my pleasure and my honor to take both of you out for a really awesome vegan meal. I am vegan, but I know some awesome restaurants and here in Los Angeles, there is no such thing as a bad vegan meal. Um, That's what I hear. Uh, Vegan is, yeah, the vegan is, it rocks. And a lot of people, a lot of places that I go to, people aren't vegan, but they just love the flavor. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I would love to take you out for a really um, compassionate vegan meal that will (laughs) stuff your face. We've also got a Doomies. Doomies is a vegan restaurant, but Doomies only sells the real deal. In other words, double, triple cheeseburgers with chili fries and shake, um, apple pie with ice cream, and it's all vegan. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's My all vegan. My doctor would love Doomies that. This is no joke. <laughs> He's like, you should go vegan. I'm like, I, I, I'm in West Virginia. I don't know how you expect me to do that. He's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> vegetarian or maybe Mediterranean. Like, could we just do Mediterranean? I'm like, I will definitely try that. But there's and then like, you will die. Yeah, there's like a vegan restaurant. Uh, but it's Indian. Um, so, I mean, I really like Indian food. So it's like I can go there and eat and I don't have to worry about it. But we got like a, a big Yeah, you'll Hare be Krishna. fun to be around. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, it's all burgers and hot dogs out here. Pizza. Okay. <laughs> so, well, then there's. So that would great, be nice like to have, uh, have great access. Spaces and, and just to share that time with you and Nate together would be a blast. Just look between the two of you like this. And be like, look, there's, there's Richard. There's Nate. There's Richard. There's Nate. There's Nate. And there's Richard. And I'm right here, too. I'm right in the middle of them. I'm just like. Did Nate tell you the story? The fir- first time I went out to L.A., he invited me to go hang out with him. And I didn't know him. And I was like. Oh yeah, I was like, I, no thanks, <laughs> man. On TVs or what? The, doing buggies or something. Or this story. I'll take you out to the desert. I'm like, I'm that's how this. people get murdered, right? <laughs> yeah, and he's like, yeah, who was that guy? He's like, yeah, was that you? Yeah, he's like, yeah, that was me. me. I was like, oh, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> but I even remember saying, like, mentioning it to my family. They're all like, that's a terrible idea. That's some crazy yeah. stalker. He's gonna take you out <laughs> there. We'll like- never see you again. I know, especially when some guys like, come on out on the dune buggies. Like, you take you out in the dunes. Come on out. We got right ATVs, the dune buggies. Like, yeah, all right. Let's start with coffee, Nate. We'll work up to yeah. we'll work up the dune buggies in the desert. Afternoon coffee date yeah. in LA. It's hilarious. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on again in the future. And if everybody listening, if you enjoyed this, make sure you leave a comment down below, subscribe, follow, leave a five star review, all that fun stuff. And Deborah Wilson. I'm still in shock that I am talking to you. My sister's going to be so stoked. Thank you. you. This has been amazing for me too. Really. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun and uh, we will see everybody else in the next podcast. Goodbye.
right. Thank you so much. Dude, you rock. <laughs> you rock. <laughs> yeah, you, we rock, don't you, we? You sent me that voice clip, that first one, and I was like, oh my gosh. And I had to send it to my sister. And she really? <laughs> she melted down. She's like, oh my God, that's her. I was like, I know. <laughs> it was so cool. I was like, I had to send your voice clips because I just I was like, what was what was bubbling up was just way too much to try to type and then and then fuck up words and shit. <laughs> So it was, yeah, I was like, oh my God, yes. Okay. And here's my information. Okay. So uh, you want to do it sooner rather than later? I was just like, uh, you know, it's like, so uh, you want you, you want to go out? You want to, uh, what do you want to do? Um, so uh, I, okay, I'm available this day and this day and this day there. If you want to, okay, okay. You want to so I was, yeah, I was geeking out. I was geeking out. That was fun. And and you do have a lot of tattoos. I did not realize. That looks um, awesome. I have a full body suit. That's so cool. Including my hands. Oh, so wow. I, my hands were done like about a month, month and a half ago. Yeah. That's yeah. very cool. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I went, I, I went full, full tilt. Nice. Yeah, the hands were the last bastion of clean skin. I said I would never do my neck, and of course, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that. And I said I would never do my hands because they're just too expressive, and I like my jewelry. Um, and of course, I got rid of my jewelry once I got my hands tattooed because the two just did, the two didn't it was like clashing. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just never thought about it's that. Like stripes and paisley, pick <laughs> one people. So I, 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 and I just gave my jewelry away, and I'm melting it down or uh, yeah. giving it to charity and donating it for um, events for people to, you know, to bid on. So and I had some beautiful custom made pieces. So, but you know, it was time to go because this, it's my mom and my dad. You, you can barely see it, but it's my mom and my dad's name, okay, Baby and Dorothy. And then I had, and I wanted something traditional American, so I had the, you know. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to see. I'm just trying to. <laughs> it's like everything. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, that's my mom, Dorothy, and that's my dad, Abby. Nice. And then I had the stars and dots put on, and I said, you know, go full tilt. Why put it there? Because now the last bastion of clean skin will be your fingers. So yeah, just, just do that too, um, and and complete the task. There you go. So to, speak. but yeah, 